And your way is my way So trust my navigation California, here we come Come high in the skyland Palm trees and warm sand Though sadly we just left Rhode Island We did what? Just forget it, I'm moving right along Hello and welcome to Staff Picks The podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds as always i'm mario lanza and i am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love and our movie today is one that is especially close to my heart because it's one of the first movies i ever saw in a movie theater and i always loved it growing up and it's kind of an odd one for me to do in the show because i don't normally do a lot of kids movies a lot of gentle g-rated movies on staff picks but this is one that i have especially strong feelings about and i am talking about the original 1979 muppet movie starring kermit the frog and all his muppet posse And uh, we're going to delve into why this movie was very special for its time and why it's not really talked about nearly enough these days as it should, because it was a very big deal at the time. It was groundbreaking. There's a couple things that happened in this movie that had never happened in any movie before, like groundbreaking special effects and just effects they were able to pull off with puppetry. So I want to delve into that and, again, just get into the heart of this movie and the vision of Jim Henson, which I do not feel really gets discussed enough these days. So it'll be fun to talk about it and my guest today uh she has been on staff picks before she was in one of my better episodes in the middle years of staff picks there titanic Uh, go back and listen to that one if you would like a good discussion of a film that was seriously underloved for many years and i'm bringing her back let's see she's an actress stage actress uh uh, what what else do you do joni uh never mind joni does a lot of stuff Right now during quarantine, what do I do? Well, I I stay up really late and I sleep in because because I can. All right, way to sell yourself, Joni. So <laughs> my guest today is an actress who sleeps in and does nothing all day, and she's in quarantine with her cat. I am in quarantine with my cat. Although I do I do I do teach children's theater classes through Zoom, so I'm not like a hundred percent useless to society right now. All right. So welcome back to the show, the not 100% useless to society, Joni Newman. (laughs) Oh, I'm going to put that on my tombstone. Not 100% useless to society. Aim high. That's what we do here on Staff Picks. Joni is (laughs) doing the bare minimum to help society out. Uh, That is is me. Yep. Bare minimum. Fozzie the bare minimum. Ah! That was terrible. Yeah, for people who don't know, Joni is one of my favorite guests. We've known each other for years through the online uh, Survivor community. Uh, We did an SNL podcast together. She's been on this show before. So welcome back, and it's going to be fun just to delve into the world of Jim Henson for a while here. Oh, it's such a happy place to go. (laughs) Like, Don't we all need a little bit of of Muppet in our life right now when everything else is just such a shitstorm? Like, we just need to go somewhere nice. (laughs) <laughs> yes. So that that is how we sell this podcast to escape the shitstorm that is the real world. Here is some Muppet discussion. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. So, Joni, give people a little history on who you are and why you are a good choice to talk about the wonderfully wholesome and delightful Muppet movie. Oh, gosh. Um, well, a uh, couple things about me, I guess. I don't know. I grew up watching reruns of The Muppet Show because I, as a child and as an adult human, have never been 
cool. <laughs> my parents used to joke that like of my siblings, I was the one most likely to want to listen to their like 70s rock music. I think as a child, I was a secret hippie. So I grew up watching The Muppet Show. I, in fact, have very vivid memories of howling with laughter on the floor in the episode where Julie Andrews came on and has this like sing off with Miss Piggy that ends up devolving into like cannons. <laughs> um, I will say my favorite Muppet is Rizzo, who is sorely misrepresented and not really used in this film. So I'm a little salty about that. But I, I have a deep and abiding love for the Muppets. I actually, in my very, very snooty graduate school experience, did a presentation on Jim Henson in my puppetry class. <laughs> that's what that's what I do at grad school. <laughs> Let's not skip over that, Joni. You took a puppetry class. Oh, and if it, if you want to get even like weirder into my like general snooty academic experience, I actually I. I do love school, but my my undergrad, my capstone course was the Lord of the Rings in film while everybody else was studying like ancient British literature. I was like, I'm going to go get credit watching Lord of the Rings. <laughs> so now I'm in grad school getting credit for building puppets. <laughs> I, I hope you guys can already see why I have Joni on this show. She is a wonderfully wonderful compliment to me just being goofy, dorky film nerds. Oh, completely. I know film trivia makes me very happy. So this is going to be really fun. There's a lot of really cool stuff to talk about with Muppets. Yeah, this is a movie that I had uh, pitched to a couple people a while back. And then Joni had told me, oh, I'm a big Muppet fan. I know the history of the show. I know all the characters. I took a puppetry class. Don't think I'm going to let that one get by. We're going to come back to that one many, many times tonight, Joni. <laughs> that's, that's totally fine. <laughs> But you know far more about the Muppets than I do. In fact, you've already mentioned one of them, Rizzo. Is that that's the rat, right? Oh my gosh, yes. He has twelve hundred and seventy-four brothers and sisters. How do we know that? Is that in canon? Where was that written? It was in it's in a Muppet Christmas Carol. Gonzo looks at Rizzo and says, You were never a lonely child, and Rizzo said, I had twelve hundred and seventy-four brothers and sisters. Okay. Which is, I think, proof that Rizzo is like, you know. Probably a recovering Catholic. <laughs> wow, you get deep into your Muppet theology. There was actually a thread on that that was started by a rabbi that I follow on Twitter, which is awesome because I am not Jewish. But she started this whole thread where people were predicting the religions of Muppets. It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so we've already established you know far more about this universe than I do. So well, and I was I was actually like in 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 all seriousness, my puppetry teacher. Um, is very good friends with a handful of people at the Henson workshop. In fact, I believe she is very good friends with Jim Henson's daughter. I think I'm stating that correctly, but they, um, but yeah, so I've been, I've been trained in puppetry by somebody who's very, very good at it. Now, don't let that make you think that I am then very good at building puppets because I am not, but I have a healthy appreciation for people who are. All that all that's important is you have a healthy fear of the puppet, Joni. That's all we care about. Fear in the sense of like fear of God or fear in the sense of I would not want them to find me in the middle of the night. <laughs> like, yeah, we're getting awfully biblical here. Yeah, we really are. <laughs> I, I like Muppets. I do. Now, that said, if the Jim Henson puppets like from Labyrinth found me, I think I would probably I wouldn't sleep for days. <laughs> We've already veered off into a weird direction with this one. We really have. If Kermit came to cuddle with me, I would allow it. Oh, well. 
I, I think it's a little TMI, Joni. We're gonna we're gonna gloss over that this one. Is, well, you keep you keep letting me just ramble. This is a problem. <laughs> you got to pull it back together. Be a good host. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, jo- see, Joni's one of the few people I kind of let go on this podcast because she and that was a mistake. I know you you have more than more to say about things than I do for the most part. And the Muppet <laughs> one, Muppets in particular, because here's my experience with the Muppets that I saw this movie in 1979 when I was five. So I was actually lucky enough to see it in the theater. And then I grew up in the 80s where any music class you were ever in, you had to sing Rainbow Connection. That was the law. (laughs) So like this is every school class ever. Anytime there's a music class, you're going to sing the goddamn Rainbow Connection. Oh, hey, now it's a nice song. I know. I I mean that in the nicest. When I say goddamn, that's a that's a compliment. It's the nicest way possible. Oh, okay. Well, understood. And then I saw the sequel, which was The Great Muppet Caper, and I was bored to death by that movie in 1981 when I was seven, and then I never saw another Muppet movie, and then about 30 years later, I was reminded, hey, the Muppet movie was pretty good, let's do a podcast about it, so my wife and I rented every episode of The Muppet Show in anticipation of this podcast, and I caught up on every single show they ever did, so now I have about one-tenth of the knowledge of Muppet history as you do. Wait, have you seen A Muppet Christmas Carol, then? No. I don't even know if I can go on. Like, I might have to just leave right now. <laughs> go cuddle with Kermit somewhere? I, for real? <laughs> that, seriously, Mario, you have to see that movie. It is absolute perfection. In fact, I used to, so before I went back to grad school, I was an English teacher, and I would make my students watch it every year during the holidays because I was in Utah and I could get away with showing them Christmas movies. <laughs> um and also, it's just funny. Actually, my best friend growing up um, named Sarah, super Jewish. Her favorite movie is Muppet Christmas Carol because it is so funny. It's Michael Caine and Muppets like at their best. I love that movie. OK, well, I mean, it's, it's well known. I've mentioned this many times on staff picks. I don't really do a lot of family movies and like children's movies. So that's one I, I probably would not have come across over the years. But perhaps perhaps I will out of my respect for my co-host here, I will go seek it out and watch it one day. I will watch Avatar if you watch him up at Christmas Carol. Ooh, wow. You're playing hardball already. It's that important to me. Well, that's like Doc Hopper doubling Max's salary to get him to play ball. You just play you Doc Hoppered me right there. I really did, and I'm gonna hold you to that. Don't think I will never forget this. You have to watch him up at Christmas Carol. It has it has this amazing like it's it's got the my favorite line of Muppet like history. When all of the cute little worker rats come to Bob or to come to Scrooge and say, our pens have turned to inksicles, our assets are frozen. And it's so good. All right. Okay. <laughs> all right I'm, I'm going to rein you back in here. We're going to bring Joni back here. So, <laughs> so I told people that I wanted to do the Muppet movie and you should have seen the pushback I got from all the Muppet zealots out there who said, oh, there's better Muppet movies in the future. And the one that I got the biggest pushback was, uh, the great Muppet caper, the movie that I did not like as a kid. Now, are you a great Muppet caper fan? Truthfully, I haven't seen the great Muppet caper in a while, but I remember really liking it. I should go watch it again. Actually. I really should. The ones that I've, the ones, the Muppet movies I've seen the most often are easily the Muppet movie, um, this first one, and then uh, Muppet Christmas Carol. And I really liked the one that came out a while ago called The Muppets, uh, the one that was kind of the reboot. I thought that one was good. I saw that one a couple times, but it's been a few years since I saw that one too. And the word on the street is there was one after that with Tina Fey you did not like. 
Oh yeah. It was Muppets most wanted. And I thought it was lame for the most part. Like it was, I mean, there were parts of it that were redeemable, but on the whole, it was pretty forgettable, which is probably why they haven't done a third one. Okay. So we'll, we'll come back to the Muppet movie here and why I picked this movie. Now, Obviously, you weren't alive. You're much younger than me. So you weren't alive in 79 when this came out. But I will try to put this in historical context for people why this movie was a big deal. Is that, you know, Jim Henson and the Muppets came out in early 70s, late 60s. Do you know exactly when they first came out? They first started making appearances on, like, commercials. In fact, you can look up some super, super dark Muppet commercials <laughs> online with an early prototype of Kermit. Literally, it's, it's for coffee. Why is it super dark? Now I'm intrigued. Oh, because the 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 whole presentation is him asking the other Muppet. It's like an early prototype Kermit. Um, it's not like his name isn't Kermit, but it's early prototype Kermit. And he um, does this whole commercial about coffee. I can't remember what brand it was, but the whole thing is a oh, Wilkins coffee. Um is him asking the other puppet if, or the, the other Muppet, if he's had Wilkins coffee and there, the other puppet is like, no, I don't like Wilkins coffee. And then the early Kermit prototype Muppet will like physically harm <laughs> the other one. Like he <laughs> blows him up. Um, he dumps him off a, an airplane. He uh, electrocutes him, like all of this stuff, just because he doesn't like coffee. <laughs> so it's, they're amazing. If you look up um, Wilkins Coffee Muppet commercials, you can find them. They're incredible. Um, they're <laughs> super, super good. So Henson started making puppets when he was in high school. Um, he first created a show called Salmon Friends um, when he was in college that was kind of a local thing. And then the Muppets themselves actually were founded in 1958. They eventually made Sesame Street in 1969. And at that point, Jim Henson was a little bit concerned about the the Muppets as a whole being kind of pigeonholed into only children's entertainment mm -hmm. because in his head the Muppets were for everybody. He didn't want his his puppets to be relegated only to educational children's programming. Um, and in fairness, like Sesame Street put them on the map and obviously is still a really important show. And Sesame Street is super smart. They do a lot of things that, that definitely appeal to adults as well as children. But Henson really wanted to do something that would give the Muppets their own television show that was more in prime time. So they actually appeared on SNL for a little bit, which was a total disaster. <laughs> yeah, I want to say, if, if people want to see the worst use of the Muppets possible, Google um, Saturday Night Live Muppets in the early 70s. They were in the mid 70s. They were terrible. Oh, yeah. It was I think it was John Belushi called them the mucking fuppets because he hated them so much. <laughs> like it wasn't it wasn't that they hated the the Muppets exactly or the performers. It was just like it was just not a good fit. It was horrible. But they ended up doing The Tonight Show and then The Ed Sullivan Show. And then eventually um, it was England that picked them up to do their own primetime program called The Muppet Show in 1976. So that's when they first started just doing like half hour programming in England and it eventually made its way to the US and was a huge success. Yeah, that's something I was kind of surprised when I learned cuz like I said we just went through all whatever four or five seasons of the Muppet show. I forget how many there were. And I was doing research and I didn't realize it was a bigger show in England than it was in the US cuz I had no knowledge of that as a kid. 
Yeah, I had no idea either until I actually did, you know, research for school. I had no idea. And when I found that out, I was like, man, it's such a miracle that we have it over here because British television and its popularity in America was kind of negligible at the time. It's mm-hmm. not, I mean, now, now British television is, is a lot more popular over here, but it took a bit. Well, especially when Kermit is killing people in coffee commercials. Oh yeah. Those, those, oh man, those commercials are so great. I believe the puppets are are supposed to be called Wilkins and Wonkins. I think that's right. But it looks like if you look at it, like the one that's doing all the torture very much looks like Kermit. Very much looks like Kermit. So evil Kermit in the early days is giving other puppets the Rasputin treatment, torturing them and trying to kill them. It's true. And so whenever anybody like, I don't know, do you remember when they tried to do that one Muppet show on television that got like one season? Yeah, it was like early 70s before SNL, right? Well, there was that one. And then there was the one that came out like three years ago. Oh, oh, recently. Oh, yeah, I yeah, do remember. Like it, super it didn't recently. Last. Yeah, it didn't last. Yeah, long. it didn't last. And everybody's complaint was the, the two biggest complaints I remember were people saying, well, they broke up Miss Piggy and Kermit and people were furious about that, which I think is funny because any Muppet watcher should realize that their relationship from its roots in this movie that we're supposed to be talking about today is super abusive and not like, not like good. Yeah. Miss Piggy is horrible to him. Oh, it's it's so horrible. And it's, it's such a dysfunctional relationship, but when they broke them up, everyone was horrified. And then the other thing was that they were using a lot of adult humor Hmm. and people were horrified by that too. They're like, Oh no, the Muppets are for children. And I find that really funny that people say that because the Muppets, did not get their grassroots start in being Sesame Street, Elmo friendly neighborhood puppets. They got their start electrocuting each other. Like they, <laughs> they are, they've always been edgy. Jim Henson was a gentle man, but he was not afraid to be a little bit edgy. Yeah. And again, the SNL thing ties into that because SNL, this hip, edgy show coming out in the mid 70s with drug humor and John Belushi, who's out of control. And that was who Jim Henson thought his audience should be at the time, which I think is very interesting. Yeah. And if you look at the history of the kinds of shows that the Henson Workshop has been involved in, a lot of them have had a pretty dark bent. Things like Labyrinth or The Dark Crystal uh, are, are a little bit like eerie (laughs) they're not they're not just nice you know quiet soft gentle children's shows they're they're a bit spooky they're david bowie in spandex you know (laughs) well this movie in particular there's a couple scary scenes the mel brooks scene i'm watching it now i'm like that was a pretty terrifying scene to sit through when you're five years old Sure. Although I, I actually watched, this is a different movie. I watched all dogs go to heaven when I was a kid and I thought Mm. it was awesome. And I really loved the Adams family. Like I had a, I had kind of a, a weird spooky obsession when I was young. And then when I got older, I went back, I actually saw, I think it was on Hulu. I saw that all dogs go to heaven was on Hulu. So I went to watch it and it did not scare me as a kid, but Oh man, I watched it as an adult. And I was like, this, this is, this is nuts. (laughs) And I wonder if that's how stuff like that was with the Muppet movie. If it just, if as a kid, you just kind of trust that everything's going to be okay and you're not really freaked out by it, maybe? I don't know. Oh, yeah. I mean, but th- this, yeah, this movie goes darker than you think it is. I mean, it, again, it all comes out okay, and it is a kid's movie. Okay, let me go back to the history here. So The Muppet Show came out in the mid-70s, was a big hit, started in England, eventually came to the U.S., and was a big deal. And then eventually it got big enough, then it got enough street cred that Jim Henson and company wanted to branch out and make a movie. Which was a big deal because before this, everything in the Muppet show was just the Muppets in the Muppet world. 
and the Muppet movie is taking them into interactions. Like before that, like all the humans were interacting with the Muppets in their territory. And now the Muppets are going to be entering into like the human space. Yeah. This is very much uncharted territory. The, these famous, most famous puppets in the world coming out into the real world, interacting in a real world scenario. And then the other thing is that they would have to show full body puppets in the movie. Or Muppets, I'm sorry, I said the tech non-technical term. But that, but that was a big deal at the time because it was believed to be impossible to show a full-body puppet in a in a movie or anything. Yeah, especially like a small one. If it was like a bodysuit, like people had seen Sesame Street, they'd seen Big Bird. But that's very obviously like, I mean, close your ears, kid. That's a human in there. And so with with other puppets, when you're looking at Kermit, it was absolutely like Jim Henson was determined to show Kermit's legs on screen. And it was, it really is a huge deal that they were able to do that. Did you read the Roger Ebert review of the Muppet movie? I think I did. Let me see if I can find it. <laughs> well, I'll just, I'm for, our sure I did. Yeah. for our listeners, there's one thing that Ebert keeps harping on over and over in his review is that, Oh my God, we saw Kermit's feet. He had never seen a puppet's feet before, and that was like a huge technical achievement at the time. So, like, this was a really big deal for technical reasons at the time, and I think a lot of people were shocked this movie worked at all because it was not believed that puppets could carry a movie. Well, and, and, he, and he loved the movie, so it's not even like him saying, oh, my gosh, we saw Kermit's feet, but I didn't like it. You know, he gave it three and a half stars. He loved it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this movie has so much heart, and it's so earnest. And again, obviously, you know this already. People who haven't watched in a while might not know. This movie is a total metaphor for Jim Henson becoming famous in Hollywood and all the hard work he had to share his dream with the world, that this movie is really just his story told through Kermit. It really is, yeah. There, there's a, it's, it's pretty well accepted that in this case, and really in all cases, Kermit is Jim's alter ego. And so this story is Jim Henson going and being able to do exactly what Kermit is asked to do, which is inspire people and make them happy. And there's something so warm and fuzzy about that, that that Kermit's goal is to bring other people joy. And that's what Jim Henson did. Yeah, although counter that with some trivia I read about the movie, and I'm sure you'd love to comment on this. Apparently, this was not a fun movie to make and it was very tense and everybody was at each other's throats while during the filming. Yeah, it was. Well, I mean, it was the first movie that they that they had made and they brought in an outside director. And I think the biggest tension was the fact that this outside director, um, it was James Frawley, just did not really know how to work with the puppeteers. And at this point, the Henson workshop was really well established. Like they'd done they'd they'd been around doing puppeteering as a group for what, 20 years by this point. Mm-hmm. So they're a very bonded group. They had a very particular way of doing things. They're, they're really, really tight and they bring in this outside person. And it was just, it was not, it was, it was, it was difficult. And from that point forward, all the rest of the Muppet movies have been directed by somebody within the company. Um, just because you then know how to work with the Muppets, with the Muppets. Mm-hmm. Actually, I don't know if that's true of the more recent ones, but all the rest of the movies, at least with, with Jim Henson and Frank Oz were directed by insiders at that point, usually Jim or Frank actually. Okay. So hopefully that puts uh, the Muppet movie into context for you guys. This movie was not really expected to succeed. Like everyone loved the Muppets, but this was a big technical challenge. And there's one scene in particular we're going to talk about when we get to it, which is Kermit riding a bike which looks so simple now. If you watch it, it's like nothing. You wouldn't even pay attention to that scene because you've seen it before. But in 1979, I'm going to bring up a movie that Joni has never seen. 
Kermit riding a bike was like an avatar level special effect. (laughs) It really was. And the other one that's a big deal that people don't look at quite as much, but really should is Fozzie driving the car. Fozzie driving the, the Studebaker was a feat, literally, like it involved a lot of feet. And we can talk about that, too. Okay, yeah, we'll get to that. We'll get to the bike. We'll get to Gonzo on the balloons. And then the scene at the start with Kermit on a log in the swamp that people have no idea how technical that shot was either. Yeah, the whole thing is so seamless. And it's it's one of the things that I really like about this movie, looking back on it. Because sometimes you look back on movies from this era when special effects are are sometimes a little bit rough and it's almost like you can you can see the smoke in the mirrors and you can still appreciate it but it's still kind of it's it can be a little distracting but in this case so many of the effects are are they just still work like Kermit riding the bike or Fozzie driving the Studebaker there's there's the moment where Kermit and Fozzie dance where you're like Mm -hmm. okay like they got they they got that a little bit better the blue screening wasn't quite as advanced as it is now but there's there's something just so pure about it that you forget that it happens, like Kermit singing on the log. You completely forget that somebody has to make that happen. <laughs> it's just Kermit singing on a log. It's beautiful. And speaking of that, that does lead me into one other thing. The soundtrack for this movie was massive. And again, like I, I said, the Rainbow Connection, we sang that in every music class I ever had as a kid. But that might not even be in my top three songs in this movie. Like, there's so many good songs. Moving Right Along is amazing. Yeah, that's the one I was going to pick, Moving Right Along. But then there's the one later, like, I hope to get back there one day that they played in Jim Henson's funeral. Yeah, that's a, that's a beautiful piece. The composer actually talked about how he loved working with Jim Henson because sometimes um, sometimes movie producers or directors will, will want to be really um, kind of controlling over the process of songwriting. But he literally just said, no, I trust you. I'll see what you come back with. Yeah, so that's, we've already mentioned two things about this movie, why it was so amazing for its time. And again, there might be better sequels, there might be better Muppet movies later, but nothing will ever top among Muppets the soundtrack for this movie and how big it was at the time, and the technical special effects, which are so good you don't even realize how complicated they are. And again, they are, it's true. Uncharted territory. They're doing stuff nobody had ever done in a movie before. Yeah, it's, it's really just, it's a very, very special film. In fact, um, it was inaugurated into what was it the where did it go the national film registry there it is um it's it's in the national film registry um and the library of congress for being culturally historically or aesthetically significant so we're not wrong if you if you disagree with us you disagree with the government (laughs) (laughs) yes please do not take on the government through staff picks as we are a proxy (laughs) service here (laughs) but uh yeah so again this movie was a really big deal and any kid growing up in the early 80s would have recognized this as one of the biggest movies of that era and it's kind of weird it's been forgotten like that yeah especially i was actually um i was curious to see how it did because i didn't know if it was successful during the time or not so i did a quick search of the of the most popular films of 1979 Mm -hmm. and it really like the fact that the muppets holds up in the list of other movies that were big that year is massive to me because a lot of the movies that came out that year are still amazing so the top grossing film of 1979 was superman okay You've also got Rocky, Rocky Two, Amityville Horror, Star Trek, the motion picture, Alien, Apocalypse Now, and The Jerk are all in the top 10. Mm-hmm. And The Muppets was number seven. 
Like that, that is incredible to me that like, there are some years where movies come out and you're like, oh, well that like you, you look at the movies and you're like, I don't recognize any of those, but this was a huge year for movies that have stood the test of time and to put the Muppets up there is awesome. And incidentally, do you know the lowest grossing film that I could find for 1979? I could name probably a hundred nominees. And I probably would not get this. What was the lowest grossing nominee or movie of 79? The fish that saved Pittsburgh. <laughs> Wow. Something tells me you have not seen The Fish That Saves Pittsburgh, the disco movie about basketball. Is that really what it's about? Because that would be amazing. Yeah, it's a, I've seen it. <laughs> you have seen it? Yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> oh, my. That is, oh, you are not lying. <laughs> what? You th- wait, wait. I host staff picks. You think I wouldn't know the plot of The Fish That Saves Pittsburgh? Now, admittedly, I have not seen a Muppet Christmas Carol, but I do know crap like that. I know obscure crap. Oh, that's incredible. That's amazing. The Muppets actually did better than Life of Brian, too, so take that, Monty Python. <laughs> well, I was going to say that fits my recollection of the time growing up in the 80s. The Muppet movie would have been right up there with Alien and Superman as that big a deal. That's, I think, don't people don't realize how how important this first movie was to establish the Muppets as a film, you know, film vehicle. This was a, this was not just a niche movie. This was everywhere. Yeah. It's that. Yeah. I, I did not realize that because I obviously was born. Well, not obviously, but you can't see me. I was born after this. And so I did not know how big a deal that was. It was, it was really, really cool for me to see that because I love it. And it's kind of nice to see that it wasn't just some niche movie that it actually was a big deal that people cared about it at the time. I love that. Oh, yeah. And to drive home that point even further, all the cameos in this movie, which were like a who's who of everybody who was a big-name comedy star at the time. And again, if people haven't seen this movie in a while, you don't remember that Richard Pryor's in here and Bob Hope and Steve Martin and Cloris Leachman, like every single Mel Brooks, they're all in this movie and they all wanted to be a part of Jim Henson's vision. And they'd probably, you know, most of these had already hosted the Muppet show. They'd already been around and involved in this process. But like this movie drew really, really big names for that time. It's such a neat little time capsule. Even for even for really tiny moments, like Steve Martin, I think, is a cameo that a lot of people remember in this movie because it's kind of long, mm-hmm. his cameo. But then you get people like Madeline Kahn, who is literally on screen for like 20 seconds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And is so good. I, I am minorly obsessed with Madeline Kahn, so that's one of my favorite cameos <laughs> in the movie. But she's she's there for just tiny, tiny little bits of pieces, and a lot of the cameos are like that. They were willing to come out. That's a huge deal. Oh, yeah, and I've seen this movie, you know, dozens of times over the years. I completely forgot that they had Richard Pryor at the peak of his career in here. Like, how did they oh, get yeah. Richard Pryor? Like, he's not the type of guy you'd expect to see in a wholesome little kids movie. Oh, no, not even a little bit. There were a bunch of those cameos where I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot they did that. Like Mel Brooks, that's another really great example where you're kind of like, oh, okay. (laughs) Dom DeLuise, that's another great one, too. He's so good at the beginning of that movie. Oh, he's so good. All right, well, hopefully we have sold this movie to people already, and we're going to walk through it now, although it's not a very complicated movie, so I don't know if we have that much to talk about other than little trivia and stuff, but it will be fun to delve into a movie that's far less dirty than most of the movies I've talked about lately. (laughs) We're going to cleanse my soul a little bit here, Joni. (laughs) That's good. We we, we can all use it. (laughs) But we're going to go to a swamp first, right? Like, how does that, a swamp in Florida, no less. Oh, yeah. Okay, so we'll start here. Although, before we start the movie, I have to say, you should really see A Fish That Saved Pittsburgh. Some have called it Lord of the Rings, but on a basketball court. Oh, my. 
Have you, are, seriously, people have said that? No, no one's ever said that. It's the worst movie ever. Okay, well, you just said that. Please don't do that. <laughs> I just love to mess with my co-host. Joni's fun to play with. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, well, we need to do, like, mystery science theater style commentator, like, commentary on that movie at some point, because that would be delightful. We're going to Statler and Waldorf it. There we go. I brought it back. I have mentioned to people before, if I ever had, I'm never going to have a permanent co-host on staff picks because it's fun to it's live dangerously and have a different co-host. But if I ever did, Joni would be the one I'd pick just because we play off each other well and it's fun because we mess with each other. <laughs> and also we have such completely different movie tastes, so it's even more fun. We, yeah, we have some crosshairs that, that kind of mesh over a little bit. But I, yeah, you definitely have a stronger bent towards horror than I do. <laughs> And I probably watch more of what my grandfather would call bonnet movies because I, I love a good historical flick. Yeah, I haven't seen too many historical English dramas in my life. I'm sorry, Joey. Oh, I've seen so many. So many historical English dramas. <laughs> Although some have called A Fish That Saved Pittsburgh the historical English drama but on a basketball court. Oh, okay. Well, now I want to watch it. <laughs> okay. Are you ready to delve into the storyline of the Muppet movie here? Let's do it. Okay, so again, this is the story of how the Muppets became movie stars, and it's a very meta movie. You kind of forget that if you haven't watched it in a while. They're very clever in some of the storylines they come up with, but it's a metaphor of how they got, how they became movie stars. Basically, they were an established property by now. Every kid in America, even adults in America, would have known the Muppets, so this is their story. And we start in a movie theater, and I know you love this, this beginning in particular because it's so chaotic. I, I really love that because, in fact, I actually, I think it I would compare it most to the opening of a movie like Beauty and the Beast, where you have that opening musical number. And it's such a great opening musical number because it tells you everything you need to know about the setting, the characters, and the conflict just in a very brief amount of time. Mm -hmm. And that's what the Muppet opening does really, really well. You get to know the characters really quickly. You establish the quirks and the relationships and you kind of get off the, like right off the bat, you're like, okay, we're in for something that's a little bit like a little bit nutty, a little bit weird. And you just buy into it. You just have to buy into it. And then of course they switch right from that into something that's so tame, which I think is such a bold move going straight into a ballad at the top of your movie. That's, that's a gutsy move. All right, I'll let you expand on that. Let me set the scene for people who haven't watched this in a while. We start in the movie theater. They're talking about how we're going to watch the Muppet movie. It's all the Muppets in the theater and just going crazy, throwing popcorn around, animals chewing on the seats. And Kermit sits next to his little nephew. And they're like, are we going to watch the story of the Muppets? Is this, our, is this your story, Kermit? Uncle Kermit? And Kermit's like, it's sort of approximately how it happened. And then the movie rolls and they start watching. And we go right into Kermit singing Rainbow Connection. Like you said, a very ballsy way to start a movie. It really is, especially like if you're looking at a musical and that you could argue that this is a musical of sorts. Most musicals open with a with a number that is a little bit peppier. Like I, I truly can't think of a musical anywhere that doesn't that starts with a ballad, not or at least not very many and not one this long. If it starts with a ballad, it'll be like a little hint to one and then go into something really peppy. But to open with this sweet number and to just let it live there and just let it go is so smart and i actually feel like and maybe this is just the time sense but it it feels so nostalgic and it just it makes you feel all warm just right off the bat even though it it i i really i really am just impressed that of all the chaos that the muppets are associated with henson decided to start the movie 
with this really sweet song about uniting people and bringing people together. And I love that. It's so it's so cool. Oscar nominated song, by the way. It was an Oscar nominated song. I looked up who it lost to. It lost to. Oh, bother. I can't remember. It, it lost best score to all that jazz. I don't remember which what song this lost to, but it was Oscar nominated. Yeah, which is pretty great. Now, was this song original for the movie, or is this one he'd played on The Muppet Show? I kind of forget. No, all the songs for this are original. Okay, and most of them are written by Paul Williams, correct? Is he the songwriter? Yeah, Paul Williams, and he, um, if you get the chance, if you have Disney+, Plus, there's a really cool interview with him on the props TV show, they, or the, like the props shows mm-hmm. that they have, um, but he, he has really, really fond memories of of filming and has some pretty cool stories about writing the songs for the show, including the Rainbow Connection. Because one of the big props they try and hunt down is Kermit's ukulele. Okay, so, yeah, like you said, it's very, this is a very wholesome scene, very meaningful scene. And it's, it's funny when I watch it now. I'm taken right back to a theater in 1979 where I'm five years old. Again, this is one of the first three movies I saw in the theater. I'm thinking, like, The Black Hole, Pete's Dragon, and this were probably the first three I saw. Maybe Superman. But yeah, it's like this, this is such an iconic scene, although we mentioned earlier, I think we can really delve into it now. It really needs to be discussed how difficult this scene was to film for Jim Henson. Oh yeah. He spent like a week in a steel drum that had been submerged under the pond (laughs) and it had, it had a camera um, or had a monitor in there so he could see what Kermit was doing. And he has a rubber glove that he's shoving up what I believe to be probably Kermit's butt. (laughs) So that he can, so that he can control him. Um, and that's just, I mean, that's the, that's the singing of the song and the scene that comes after it. And so he spent many days submerged underwater to make that scene happen. Like I, I just thinking about that makes my claustrophobia be like, want to quit, <laughs> be like, yeah, we can't make, we can't make the movie anymore. <laughs> I don't think I could do it. He buried himself alive underwater to film this shot. For all of us. He did that for us. <laughs> it's it's crazy. And you watch it. It's just Kermit sitting on a log strumming a banjo. But they had three different Kermits for that shot. One of them was animatronic. One was a puppet. I forget what the third one was. But yeah, he risked death for that shot. It must have been so horribly uncomfortable. And that's the one thing that really has to be talked about in this movie. Like, the, the way they would get certain shots, and you don't realize it until somebody talks about it. It looks so innocent and simple on camera. It's, yeah, it's the same thing when we talk about the Studebaker. Like, I think I think really good puppeteers, and especially um, Muppeteers in shows like like this one or Sesame Street, you just you don't you don't appreciate that they are very very used to getting themselves in very small uncomfortable spaces and to make this happen. And I will drop a little early 80s trivia on you, Joni, young Miss Newman, is that one of the favorite games among most of the kids I knew in school, like we always sing Rainbow Connection in music class, Mm -hmm. it was always a game to see who could come up with the filthiest lyrics for it. (laughs) Now, I don't remember, I don't remember some of the jokes that we told, but it was always a game to see if you could horrify your classmates by the most filthy, the filthiest limerick version of the Rainbow Connection. I'll date myself a little. In in my age, it was finding um, the phallic references on VHF co- S covers of Disney movies. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I see The Little Mermaid made an appearance. Oh, yeah, Little Mermaid, definitely. That was actually the first movie I saw in theaters. Um, but yeah, finding that moment where the where the priest was allegedly erect in The Little Mermaid was was like a rite of passage for people. <laughs> 
I'm glad we could dirty up Disney or, uh, Jim Henson Productions here a little bit. <laughs> okay, so Kermit sings this beautiful ballad, Rainbow Connection, which to this day still holds up really well. Again, Jim Henson had a wonderful singing voice. I don't know if he gets a lot of credit for that. But in a Kermit, in a Kermit voice, too. That's the thing. He's singing, but as Kermit, which is even doubly more impressive. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah, same thing with all of them. Like, I, I really get very quite, like, I get very tickled thinking about Frank Oz, who voices both Yoda and Miss Piggy, <laughs> singing songs. Like, if you close your eyes, you can almost hear the Yoda in there, and it just makes it even better. <laughs> yeah, there's one song later with Miss Piggy where she hits that high note at the end, and it's n- not pleasant. <laughs> oh, it's it's so, it's so good. That's one of my favorite comedic moments in the whole movie, that they just allow that to be as horrible as it can be. It's so good. Okay, so... Uh, so Kermit is sitting on his log doing his little song and a and Hollywood agent happens to be rowing a rowboat by. And this is one of many cameos in this movie, Dom DeLuise, who younger listeners won't know, but he was a big name at the time in every comedy movie, Johnny Carson's number one favorite guest ever. So Dom DeLuise comes by and he basically, I'm a Hollywood agent. Hey, they're looking for talented frogs out in Hollywood. It, we just saw an ad today in Variety Magazine for frogs. Why don't you come out and be a movie star? And Kermit had never considered this before. Yeah, and this is this does kind of mirror Jim Henson a little in that he started doing kind of small stuff and then decided uh, to to try and bring his Muppets to a wider audience instead of just local access, which is kind of exciting. Was he approached in a swamp by an agent? I, you know, the, the history books are a little vague on that. <laughs> no, but one of the things that I think this scene highlights really well is that the, to me, the hallmark of a really good Muppet movie or a really good Muppet actor is when the actor interacts with the Muppets as actors, not as puppets. Like you don't see them talk down to him, whatever. And Dom DeLuise does this so well. Like you 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 see him sharing this scene with Kermit on equal footing. Mm-hmm. And it's so great because it sets the stage for the rest of the movie because that's what a lot like a lot of the other cameo actors also do that really well. You know who also does it very, very well? Who? Michael Caine as Scrooge in the Muppet Christmas Carol. <laughs> I've heard that's a great movie. Word on the street. It is. In fact, people asked him how he prepared for the Muppet Christmas Carol because he had done Scrooge on like London stages um, in, you know, highfalutin, more adult locations. And he said he prepared for Scrooge with the Muppets the same way he prepared for it on stage. And it shows in his excellent performance, which you should see. All right. All right, Mom, I will. Okay, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know who this movie really needed as a cameo who had been really good at interacting with a Muppet? Who? Your old favorite, Kristen Stewart. (laughs) <laughs> just I, I rendered her speechless Joni has a well-known hatred of Kristen Stewart in that she used to teach a class and one of her the lessons was how horrible Kristen Stewart is as an actress she has no range none <laughs> she has one facial expression for everything and she goes <laughs> all the time I would have loved to see her with a Muppet it would have been fantastic Oh, you know, you know what, though? You know who I would love to see Kristen Stewart opposite would be Miss Piggy or Animal, just to, like, have them, like, rip into her. Hmm. Dream. Dreams. We're living dreams now. (laughs) We found Joni's bucket list of movie scenes right there. (laughs) Yeah, Kristen Stewart. Let's, uh, let's, let's take her out. Uh. (laughs) 
I know she's gaining popularity, but uh, all right, Kermit riding the bike. We need to get back on track. <laughs> all right, we'll get we'll get up to that. Okay, so although we do have one of the great running jokes in this movie, where again, Jim Henson was not really writing jokes for kids. He always wanted to aim a little higher, kind of the mystery science theater thing, where where the agent is lost in the swamp, and the agent says, "I've lost my sense of direction," and Kermit says, "Have you tried Hari Krishna?" Which that is not a joke that a five year old is going to get. They actually come back to that a little bit later on when they um, when they find um, the electric mayhem on the on the sign outside the church. I noticed this actually for the first time ever watching this. It asks it tells them uh, lost. Have you tried Reverend Harry Krishna? So like the, the, the gag comes back. It also comes up in the El Slizo. That's actually the third joke. Within the first 20 minutes of this movie, there's three references of the Hare Krishna joke. Incidentally, the um, the Twitter feed about which uh, religions all the Muppets would be, it was pretty well accepted that the members of Electric Mayhem were probably Hare Krishna. Yeah, one way or another, they were a cult. We know that. So, whatever. <laughs> Okay, look, in fairness, I know some very nice Hare Krishna people. <laughs> they are not a cult. Well, not all cults are bad. No, I mean, come on, not all cults are bad. Come on, I, I said that in the nicest way possible. <laughs> okay, so now one of my flaws as a human being, this has come up many times over the years, I cannot do a Kermit the Frog impression, oh, gosh, which is terrible, because I want... I know I want to do that. I know so many people who can, and I can imitate like 90% of movie quick characters and voices. Kermit, I cannot do, but there's one line here I love where, where Kermit says, watch out for alligators, alligators. Oh, and the way that he articulates it with his mouth, like the, the puppeteering there is so funny. I also love when Kermit's mouth, I like, I don't even know how to describe it fully, but like when he kind of sucks back. Uh-huh. In his face when he's a little bit like when he's like, ooh, that was awkward. And he sucks back. Oh, it's so funny. But that alligators moment is so good. Yeah, my wife, to this day, there's three moments in this movie she loves. Kermit the Frog is her favorite movie character ever. She loves his little facial reactions. But that one, alligators, is her second favorite in this movie. We'll get up to her favorite later. It's in the Mel Brooks scene, her all-time favorite Kermit moment. Oh, excellent. Has she seen him up at Christmas Carol? She probably has. I, I would because I would, it's a good it's a good movie for Kermit. He plays Bob Cratchit, and it's so good. All right, so so the agent says basically, come to Hollywood. You can make millions of people happy. Share your dream. You're a singing frog. You love to perform. You have a sense of humor. And Kermit has never considered this before. He just likes sitting in his lake or in his pond and playing his banjo. But he's like, all right, well, maybe I will. Maybe I'll go out to Hollywood. It sounds fun. I'd love to share my gift. And we cut right to him traveling on his own towards Hollywood or somewhere in town. And this is the infamous slash amazing shot at the time of Kermit riding a bicycle. It's incredible. Like the, the, the way that this worked out is just mammoth. Um, they end up, I don't, do you know how they did it? I do. Cause I read the trivia, but you can probably explain it better. Oh, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can explain it better, but I know that it, um, that he's hooked up on the bike, um, and then controlled by clear strings that you can't really see. So he's, he's a marionette in essence. If you don't know what a marionette puppet is, go watch the sound of music. Um, but they're puppets that are controlled from above. Um, so obviously like there's nobody underneath him, but it's controlled by this marionette on a huge crane that's out of frame that you can't see. Yeah. Although it's even more impressive than that when I was watching it because he's got facial reactions as he's riding the bike. 
So oh, yeah. they're, they're also controlling his cheeks and his his face as he's riding mm-hmm. the bike. So I don't know how many wires and strings they got up there in these invisible wires, but it looks so seamless. And again, I've heard other people say, oh, you know, they do that in other Muppet movies. They always have them riding bikes. But I'm like, in 1979, no one had ever done that before. Like, this is on par with making Superman fly in the same year. Like, this is that level of special effect for that kind of technology at the time. Yeah, they say this was the hardest for them to film. That this, yeah, this, this was a huge deal to make that happen. I think if I remember right, Kermit's face was animatronic for that part. Oh, so they, they don't have wires on his faces. No, I don't believe so. I'm pretty sure it was, it was animatronic. Okay. Well, either way, to me, this is the standout shot in this movie. There's so many other things going on, but like that. And again, in Roger Ebert's review, he commented on the same thing. Oh my God, they had a puppet riding a bike. I've never seen that in a movie before. That's so cool. Oh, yeah. Like, if you're looking for jaw-dropping moments, I think this is, like, to me, there are two shots that make this movie really iconic. And one of them is Kermit in the swamp playing his ukulele, and the other is Kermit riding his bike. And it happens just bam, bam, right off the top. And from that point forward, it's not like the rest of the movie's bad. It's just those are the iconic moments that people remember. Oh, yeah. And both of them, at the time, people wouldn't really have really understood how technically difficult those were. Yeah. It's, It's so crazy. Yeah, the bike shot is cool and different, but they wouldn't have realized how how big of a shot that was. Okay, so we go ahead here, and Kermit's riding into town. He's about to meet Fozzie Bear, but first he sees a sign, and this will be the tension in the movie, the dramatic uh, villain here, that apparently there's a new restaurant in town opening called Doc Hopper's Frozen Frog Legs, or French Fried Frog Legs, and naturally, Kermit is a little horrified to know that his legs will be used as food for people. There's There's one of those, like, slightly meta moments. There are some bigger meta moments, but yes. A little bit of like, ooh. Yeah, we meet one of the characters here, Max, played by Austin Pendleton, very famous actor, who will be one of the main good guys in the movie later, but he's like, this guy Doc Hopper owns a frog leg empire, he's opening a chain of restaurants, and Max is up there setting up the signs, and Max sees Kermit, he's like, hey, look at that, a frog riding a bicycle, how cool, and so Max will be a, a... ally of Kermit later in the movie. For now, all we have to know is that Max has recognized him and Kermit is going to be in trouble because frog legs are apparently a huge delicacy around here. Yes. And it's kind of an intriguing, like if we're talking symbols, it's this idea of like people literally trying to eat you alive while you're trying to go get your dreams. Like (laughs) he's, you know, all, all he wants to do. I think it's so cool that Kermit's motivation to leave his swamp isn't fame or fortune. It's just making people happy that that's enough motivation, motivation for him. But that even in the middle of trying to go after this very pure thing, like there are people who will literally try and eat him alive. (laughs) Well, and that's one of the things I wanted to point out about this movie, why I think it's special and why I wanted to do it on staff picks is that you think it's like the silly little comedy, but I don't even know if I'd call this a comedy. Like it's got a lot a much deeper intention in the story than it just making people laugh. It really does, especially when you especially when you consider Jim Henson. Like this this whole movie is in in retrospect definitely like a love letter to his particular journey to try and bring the world good things. And he really did. Like the Sesame Street, for instance, is it, uh, there was a survey done in the late 90s that said that 95% of American children had seen Sesame Street by the age of three. It has 100% brand recognition around the world. Like everybody knows the results of what he has done. And I think it's interesting if we want to get kind of topical that when people are considering how to tell their children about racism, there was a time when we would have turned to Mr. Rogers for that. Mm -hmm. 
but Mr. Rogers isn't around anymore. And so I thought it was really intriguing that to have this like nighttime special to help teach your kids about a very difficult topic, they turned to Sesame Street. And so it's, it's really true that like Jim Henson's legacy is just mammoth. And so it's, it's neat that it has this kind of very grassroots home where you can come back and go, oh, this is his story. This is his life told kind of symbolically and with some humor, but definitely there's, there's some really good homage to him as a human being. Now, to be honest, could a discussion of the great Muppet caper delve into those kind of topics? I think not. Probably not. (laughs) There you go. Thank you. Or, or Muppets in space, which is like way worse. In fact, I saw a joke about it the other day. Kermit made a joke about it, maybe on Twitter. Oh gosh, I'm going to have to find that where he said something about like regrets and one of them, he was like, well, Muppets in space. Like it was like, <laughs> like they, they got meta on their own failure on Muppets in space. It was so funny. I'm going to see if I can find it. It was so good. Wow. So they didn't teach about racism through Muppets in space. Um, no. <laughs> okay. Well, you look it up. I'll, I'll jump ahead here. So we're about to meet the second part of the Kermit and Fozzie duo, Fozzie bear, who again, big name, character on the Muppet show. He was in every episode. He was a big, he was as identifiable as Kermit at the time. And apparently he is a stand-up comedian in a bar called the El Slizo, which I always appreciate, <laughs> which they describe as the toughest, meanest filth hole on the planet. It was worse than Detroit. <laughs> Poor Detroit. <laughs> yeah. Now they didn't, that's not, but that's an airplane joke for people like airplane, but yeah. <laughs> But uh, it's the worst bar in the world, and we go inside, and Fozzie is basically being heckled and booed by a hostile crowd as they want to kill him. But we do get a couple of cameos here, including your favorite Madeline Kahn. Uh, Who actually um, makes a small Blazing Saddles reference. Yeah, by the way she speaks. What does she say for people who haven't watched this movie in a while? Oh, I can't remember what she says, but she, what does she say? She says, hey, sailor, buy me a dwink. Oh, that's right. That's right. She gets rid of her R's. I was going to say, I remember she gets rid of her R's, but I can't remember what she said. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I need a doink. Happily, that's the only Blazing Saddles reference in the Muppet movie, because I'm not sure the crossover audience would have been much of a Venn diagram. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I love when movies do that, though. In fact, actually, one of my favorite movie references that did that was in Zootopia. They make a reference to Breaking Bad, and I am 99% <laughs> sure I was the only person that caught it in the theater because I was dying. And people around me were looking at me like, what is wrong with you? But I was like, they literally just named these drug mules, Jesse and Walter. (laughs) And they're they're peddling blue stuff. This is a Breaking Bad reference. So I can imagine that some people probably had that same experience when they, when then Madeline Kahn showed up. (laughs) Yeah. But sadly, that's about her only line in the movie. It's very quick. Oh, it's so sad because she's so good. But she has a really great, she has a great episode on The Muppet Show. That's true. That is one that I remember liking. That was a great episode. That's one of the better ones, I think. It's a brilliant episode. So if you're looking for a really good like intro to The Muppet Show, because some of the episodes are a little weird, that one is really, really fun. So go watch that episode. <laughs> well, you didn't like the Moominshants one with the dance troupe or the mime Not troupe? particularly. <laughs> <laughs> That was a weird one. Okay, let's get back to the movie. So, so yeah, Telly Savalas shows up here and Carol Kane, and we get the – there's a – the one thing that the Muppets love to do is corny jokes. And like, you can tell the, yeah, the cornier the joke, the better. Oh yeah. Like they lean into it so hard that it's like, you have to laugh because it's just, it's just part of the acceptance of watching a Muppet movie is really horrible jokes that are just owned. (laughs) 
the one here is where uh, Telly Savalas says, don't touch my girlfriend Madeline Kahn because she'll get warts. And Kermit says, no, that's a myth, myth. And Carol Kane walks by and says, yes. that's about the stupidest joke you'll ever see in a movie but you know they own it they go for it and and they call back to it later which i appreciate oh it's so good (laughs) and then uh so good and then uh we have paul williams the actual song the guy who wrote the songs for the movie makes a cameo here as the piano player Mm-hmm. And uh, here's where we get the callback. You missed this one where Fozzie Bear's on stage and Kermit says, oh, this guy's lost because Kermit because Fozzie's jokes aren't landing because Kermit's like, this guy's lost. And some guy go, behind him goes, maybe he should try Hare Krishna. <laughs> oh, man, I totally missed that. I'm going to have to go rewatch. There, that's actually one of the things I do like about this movie is that because there are so many pop culture and just cultural references in general that I feel like every time I watch it, I, I find something new, like hidden in the background of a scene or in somebody's line that you just kind of overhear or miss or whatever. It's so fun to rewatch it because there's more to discover even, what, 40, 50 years later? Oh, yeah. And even Kurt, I mean, Kermit will even comment on it from a meta point of view. He's like, oh, great. It's a running gag. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, going off the little topic, if people have ever read my Survivor writing, The Funny 115, I love callback references and setting stuff up so I can bring it back later. It's entirely probable I learned that ta- that that strategy from the Muppet movie because that's what they do. They set up these running gags and they keep going with them. So Jim Henson's legacy extends even to my horrible, filth-ridden Survivor writing. <laughs> it's true, though. And like they, they will sometimes even push that envelope because – in acting and in theater, there's kind of this comic rule of threes, the idea that you can do something three times, but after that, it's not funny. Um, and sometimes they push that a little bit where they're <laughs> like, you know, we're going to see what happens if we do it that fourth or fifth or seventh time, just to see. Jim Henson did not play by the rules. We'll just say that. No, he didn't. He, he kind of established his own thing. And I love that about him. And he had a great crew around him. I mean, Jim Henson and Frank Oz, we talk a lot about Jim Henson, but Jim Henson would not be Jim Henson without Frank Oz. Yeah. Okay. We'll get more to him. Yeah. We'll get more to him with Miss Piggy once we get up to her. Yeah. In fact, while we're, while we're on the topic of Paul Williams, um, he actually would talk about how, if you went to go have a conversation with Jim and Frank, because they were together quite often. And if Jim and Frank had their puppets with them, so if they had Kermit or Miss Piggy with them, that you were not having a conversation with two men, you were having a conversation with four (laughs) because Kermit and Miss Piggy would offer their commentary. (laughs) Okay, let's, <laughs> let's delve into that from a psychological point of view sometime. But not <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it kept the conversations going in very, very, like, humorous directions. Like, I can imagine how that would help keep the whole spirit of a place just kind of lively and fun. And it would definitely add to that idea of both of them improvising within character, helping them develop Kermit and Piggy. I just think it's, I think that's awesome. Although it does make me thankful that they never had any love scenes with Kermit and Miss Piggy because it would have made the conversation very uncomfortable. It's like, you know, Jim and Frank, stop humping each other's hands, please. We're having a conversation here. I mean, they kind of do that in this film. (laughs) (laughs) I'm best friends to the end. That's all we'll say. Oh, it's so true. Have you seen have you seen the poster for this movie? It's like Gone with the Wind, right? It is, it is specifically designed, Jim Henson requested, he's like, I want it to look like Gone with the Wind, and that's what it, that's what it is at the very top, only instead of Rhett Butler dipping Scarlett O'Hara, it's Miss Piggy dipping Kermit. <laughs> okay, so Fozzie basically gets torn apart by the crowd, he's a terrible stand-up comic, but 
he and Kermit somehow go outside, and uh, I'm not even going to talk about the drinks on the house joke, because that's even stupider than the myth, myth joke. <laughs> we'll skip past that. But they end up together, and, and Fozzie wants to go to Hollywood, too, because he wants to be an entertainer, so they hop in. Fozzie apparently has a Studebaker, and he knows how to drive, because as you pointed out in your notes for this episode, one of the best jokes where Fozzie says he learned how to drive through a correspondence course. Oh my gosh, that's so good. It's so funny. Yeah. As a kid, I didn't catch the humor there. Oh, man. Okay, so the, but they pull off and they start driving to Hollywood. And this is where they meet Doc Hopper for the first time, who, if I recall, tries to convince Kermit, you know, as a nice guy, the first time says, hey, please be my spokesperson for my restaurant where we eat frog legs. And Kermit says, hell no, get out of my face, old man. In essence, yes. I don't remember Kermit saying hell no, but I would love if that actually happened. <laughs> That's the, uh, the the theater version that was R-rated. Oh, okay. No. <laughs> but uh, I got to point out the villain here, Doc Hopper, played by the wonderful Charles Durning, who I love. He's a, a villain in a ton of stuff during this era in movies. Mm-hmm. He's a great sleazy bad guy, including there's no way, no chance on earth you've ever seen this movie. But there's a horror or TV horror movie called Dark Knight of the Scarecrow where he plays. I love that movie. <laughs> yeah, I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> He plays Never this evil, evil mailman who kills the special needs guy and tries to hide the body. So, oh, my gosh. Yeah, Charles Durning. That's a <laughs> wonderful villain for that era. Wow, that's dark. I know, it's dark. And then the, the, the mentally challenged guy comes back through the vengeful spirit of a scarecrow, and the scarecrow carts start hunting down people in revenge. Wow. <laughs> I'll be doing that for Horror Month this year, so people can look forward to that movie. <laughs> oh, my. Okay, so so real question. Do you like horror movies because you find them funny, or do you like horror movies because you like to be scared? I like movies that are creative, and what I like about horror movies is a lot of first-time directors and stuff. That's how they broke into movies, because you don't need... You don't really need an elaborate script or a lot of special effects to just do a creepy movie. And so I really like how ambitious a lot of these low-budget horror movies were for that era. That's what I like about them. I think I find them very creative. Have you ever have you ever watched any of Peter Jackson's early horror films? Um, he did the one, the Heavenly Creatures, right? Yeah. I I know that one. I know I know of his movies. I'm not as familiar with him as some of the others. Yeah, he there, there's a reason why why the man made Lord of the Rings because his his like slasher films are dark. <laughs> I do like dark movies. The darker the better for me. But sometimes I find them fun. But Dark Knight of the Scarecrow is this little TV movie that nobody's ever heard of. But the people who have like were scarred for life because it's so dark for a TV movie. Yeah, that sounds dark. The plot just sounds pretty horrible. But <laughs> yes. he's he's a great villain in this movie too. And again, like going back to that idea of wanting wanting actors to act opposite the Muppets that are going to treat them as characters, not as puppets. He does that really, really well because if his villain treated this like, if he didn't take it seriously, if he wasn't treating this like a legitimately villainous role, the movie wouldn't stand up. Yeah. And he's more than just a cameo. Like you talk about this movie cameos. No, Charles Durning is a lead actor in this movie. He's, he has a lot of scenes in this movie. Yep. He really does him and Max both. Um, they carry the weight of the humans in this in this film, and they do it very, very well. <laughs> okay, now we'll go one of the greatest transitions ever from special needs guy re- <laughs> killing people in the guise of a scarecrow <laughs> to moving right along starring Fozzie Bear. Let's talk about this scene. Oh, my gosh. I uh, This song is so underrated, and it's one of my favorites. I actually legitimately have it on my iPod and listen to it when I go – well, my phone, not my iPod anymore. 
Um, I listen to it when I go on road trips. It's one of my favorite road trip numbers. Oh yeah. No, I personally think this is the best movie, best song in the movie. And it, this movie probably single-handedly inspired me to take long, meandering road trips. That's one of my favorite things to do is drive across the country and just take my time. I've done oh, that like too. four times. But this movie, I swear to God, probably inspired that when I was five years old, this song. Oh, for sure. No, I grew up doing long road trips as well. So I think for me, like for any kid whose parents were too cheap to fly, um, and for and for, just in general, I've learned to really love road trips. And in fact, like when I go, when I travel now, I – especially when I go to Europe, most people will go by train or just fly between cities. I always rent a car because it's more fun to me to take that road trip and have the time to just kind of talk and stop where you want. And I think some of that nostalgia for me probably comes from a song like this as well, because there's some, there's, there's some fun about just seeing the world and taking your time. Do you rent a Studebaker? Oh gosh, I would love to. (laughs) Yeah. So just a little montage here of Kermit and Fozzie driving across America and just uh, corny jokes, like there's a fork in the road joke, which I, as a kid, I thought that I was I love hilarious. that joke so much. It's so dumb, and I love it so much. Yeah, they're like, if you come to a fork in the road, turn left, and they drive, and there's literally a giant fork in the road. It's, <laughs> so. such, it's such a classic Muppet joke. Such a classic Muppet joke. So two things here. One is we get a cameo from Big Bird. As uh, Fozzie and Kermit are driving west towards Hollywood, we pass Big Bird walking east, and he says he wants to make it in the world of public television. So Big Bird is walking to New York to star in Sesame Street, which I thought was a fun little crossover. Oh, it's it's such a wonderful little reference for people. It's one of those moments where, like, if, I mean, Sesame Street was obviously very popular by that point, and so anybody who would have seen it would have been like, oh, yeah, Big Bird. <laughs> in the same way that I did today, I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot Big Bird was in this. <laughs> so way to go, Carol Spinney. We love, we love Big Bird. Now, okay, answer a question for me. When is the last time you saw this movie prior to researching it for staff picks? Um, I probably three or four years. Okay, I'm just take. curious. Yeah, like I like I actually I probably got it right after I probably watched it right after I got it on DVD because I found it um, probably in like a five dollar Walmart bin or something and got it there and then watched it when I got it home. But I hadn't seen it again until it got put on Disney Plus and we and I started doing research for this. And that is what Jim Henson would have wanted from his vision. The five dollar discount bin at Walmart. Oh, you know what? I don't know that he would have cared because like Kermit, he was all about you know, taking care of the people. (laughs) I think he would have been glad people were still watching the movie. I think you're probably right. Okay. Um, So one thing I got to say about the song is that like, there's, there's many things I'm good at in life and there's a couple things I'm really, really bad at. And I'm almost embarrassed to share this on staff picks. I cannot tell East from West. I never have been able to, I have to literally use my fingers to point which direction is East and West. Like I always think East is the right and West is the left, but that doesn't always work. And like to, to this day, I always have a hard time. Like I've cont- like, I can't tell you the number of times I've taken the wrong freeway exit ramp. Cause I think it's East, but I meant West. <laughs> oh man. I know I'm with you on that. I grew up in Iowa, but my parents grew up in Utah and in Utah directions are really easy because the mm-hmm. mountains are always East. Mm-hmm. And so you can give directions east west there because there's this huge, you know, perpetual landmark that can help you. But when I grew up in Iowa, they're like, oh, you're going to go east here, west here. I'm like, that means nothing. I need lefts and rights. <laughs> yeah, it's the exact same way. I'm glad someone else shares my my handicap here. Oh, no, I'm the same. No, I'm the same way. Even now, like I, I lived in Utah for a while and I could give east west directions there. But now I live in Florida where there's no landmarks anywhere. Um, and so I was like, mm. Yeah, I need lefts and rights, please. <laughs> well, yeah, California, I live in Southern California, is especially bad for that because they have all these cloverleaf freeway interchanges. Mm, like mm-hmm. if you 
We've got those too. Yeah. If you want to go west, sometimes you take the east exit ramp and it loops you all around and you start going like, what the hell? So I'm always, so anyway, this song, there's a line, hey, I've never seen the sun come up in the west. For 41 years, I've remembered that because now I know the sun does not come up in the West because of this song. I always remember that. Okay, how does the Muppet movie work? And I have to do my little George Costanza, do the opposite of what my instincts are, and it's probably right. So this song taught me the sun does not come up in the West, and I always remember that. Yep, that is that is true. <laughs> and this is the problem with kids in the 70s that didn't grow up with westerns because in the westerns in the 50s and 60s you knew the sun always set in the west that's how that's how mm-hmm. you can tell the sunset i did not grow up with westerns so i'm not familiar with that concept <laughs> yeah but even then like it can be kind of tricky like even with that unless it's unless it's at specific points of the day even that doesn't really help me yeah. like if it's if it's high enough in the sky like i can't tell which direction it's going just tell me left or right this is why google maps is like the greatest thing ever I never have to, I, I, I mean, I've lived in Florida for two years now. For the first year I lived here, Google Maps took me everywhere because I just, I can't, I, I cannot. <laughs> Google Maps and the Muppet movie are the number, the two top teachers of East West geography for Miss Newman and myself. It's true. It's true. <laughs> okay. So we're moving right along and we're going to get another seat. <laughs> Yeah, we're going to get another scene here where Doc Hopper is uh, still trying to get Kermit to sell his frog legs. And we pass a billboard where Kermit's face has already been painted on as the mascot for Doc Hopper's frog legs. And I got to say, damn, he works really fast if he bet Kermit yesterday. Yeah, he's got he's got, you know, a lot of power. I think this helps give him a little bit of weight as a villain. that He's got some money he can throw around for a very quick project. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing better to do than to stalk a frog across the country. I know, like there aren't. Um, I can I can tell you from experience, he could have found more frogs in that swamp. <laughs> you know, why does he need Kermit? One of the greatest restaurant moguls in the country is transfixed by this one frog. I know. I I, I actually think it's funny. Like as we've talked about him being a great villain in this movie, and he truly is. His motivations are so weird. <laughs> They make no sense at all because there are so many frogs. <laughs> but not singing frogs that play the banjo, Joni. You're missing that. I mean, they could be taught. Come on. like <laughs> it's nat- The classic nature versus nurture argument for frogs. It's true. Maybe he just does. I mean, he can pay somebody to paint a billboard really quick, but he can't pay someone to trade a frog. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, so Kermit and Fozzie are distracted and, and Doc Hopper's again, please come, uh, you know, be my spokesperson. And Kermit says no. And again, this movie's darker than you remember where Kermit says, you look at that and you see frog legs. All I see are millions of frogs on tiny crutches. I know. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> that is one dark line for a kid's movie. You know where else you see many frogs on crutches, Mario? Where would that be, Joni? In the Muppet Christmas Carol when Robin plays Tiny Tomb. <laughs> is that the one? Is that because Tanya Harding's in there and she takes out all their knees? No, that's because. Wait, well, maybe I don't know. That could have been the backstory. Yes, that's the, the white trash version of Muppet Christmas Carol. Yeah, you know we we don't know why Tiny Tim is a cripple, and we could, I think, blame Tanya Harding for that. <laughs> it does. She does seem like a reasonable suspect. Yeah, it's not, it's not, it's definitely not the poor living conditions of Victorian England. It's obviously Tanya Harding. (laughs) Okay, so here we go. So 
Kermit and Fozzie escape and leave Doc Hopper. Now Doc Hopper's mad. He's like, I've asked him nice twice, and now I'm going to kill him. So now it gets even darker for a kid's movie. But that's okay, because now we have a really long interlude. And I will say, this is probably my least favorite part of this movie, even as a kid. I would kind of check out where we meet Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem for a while. Yeah, this is definitely one of those sections that I think plays more to adults than to kids. Because, like, the Electric Mayhem is really well known just in Muppet lore for being like super meta and definite druggies and so there are so many references that they make that are easily for adults that I'm that I think would definitely go over the heads of children <laughs> well that, that's one thing I definitely noticed watching the Muppet show is how gratuitous the Dr. Teeth and Electric Mayhem scenes were they would just go on and on I'm like man these the writers of that show really love these guys I think probably far more than the audience did it, yeah, that might be true. And I think that's probably why they throw Animal in there, because Animal is very clearly for small children. Mm -hmm. And so it's like to try and counter the, the very chill, half-baked or fully-baked, like, attitude of Dr. Teeth and the Mayhem. Like, they, because Animal is so crazy, but they are just so, let it go, man. <laughs> yes. The first high puppets ever. Oh, oh yeah. And not the last. <laughs> yeah, especially Janice. Who knows what Janice is on? She's she's so loopy. She's up there in the, what, what was her name? Uh, Janice Joplin world. That's Janice. Oh, for real. Janice could easily have hung with the Beatles. <laughs> yes. And it would, and no one would have looked and been like, oh, these are different attitudes. No, <laughs> they would have fit right in. She could have sang Strawberry Fields forever and it would have been a hit. Okay, so again, this is a long section of the movie where we meet the Electric Mayhem, and they're in a church. And like Joni said, there's a sign outside that said, Lost, try Reverend Harry Krishna. So again, that's three, <laughs> three jokes already in the movie of her Harry Krishna for way over the heads of most five-year-olds. Oh, yeah. it was. I mean, it was way over my head until I learned what a Hare Krishna was, which was actually, truthfully, when I moved to Spanish Work, Utah, because there's a Hare Krishna temple down the road. Beautiful. I used to take students there on field trips, so they're super great. I love them. They had great food, and we got to race their llamas. Incidentally, do you know how long llamas pee? A long time. <laughs> I've never pondered that question, Joni. I didn't either until I saw a llama pee. It was easily five minutes. <laughs> As Madonna would say in A League of Their Own, that's some good peeing. It really was. It really was. <laughs> we have some weird side conversations in this episode. Well, you know what? The Muppets have weird side conversations. I think it's just par for the course. Okay. Speaking of weird side conversations, the genius of this scene was completely over my head when I was a kid. And again, oh, yeah. this is so <laughs> they meet them the electric mayhem and they're like, so what's your story, Mr. Frog and Bear? And Kermit's like, well, we could tell you, but it would take too long. So they literally pull out the screenplay and show them like this is where we got. This is how we got here. Just read the movie. Which is so meta. Oh, and it has my absolute favorite line probably in the whole thing. Um, where it's like, if this were a movie, we'd think of a clever plot device. <laughs> yes. If this was a movie, which it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so the Electric Mayhem, they don't want to come to Hollywood to be stars. They're like, you know, good luck on your mission. And again, they're like this funk band and uh, they're all high. <laughs> and they have Animal, who... Incidentally, when I was a kid, Animal was every kid I knew's favorite Muppet. Hands down, not even close. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Animal, I think, was every small child's favorite, except mine. I grew up really loving Miss Piggy and then transferred to Rizzo. 
Okay. Well, I will say my favorite. You will see my weirdness as a child. I was 100% team Beaker. Oh, I love Beaker. Beaker and Honeydew are the greatest. Yeah. In fact, I was shocked when I met my wife and she's like, oh, I love Kermit. I'm like, nobody loves Kermit. It's all animal or Beaker. But she's a Kermit. She's a Kermit stan. Oh, yeah. No, Kermit. I, I mean, you can't hate on Kermit. He's the beating heart and soul of everything. Like he's he's the globe. The Muppets all revolve around. So you have to love Kermit. But oh, man. Yeah, I want to meet the weird kid who was like, my favorite Muppet was Zoot. And I'm like, what the fuck, Zoot? The yeah, for real. <laughs> <laughs> this kid should be in a special school or something if Zoot is your favorite. It's so true. Like one, how do you know who Zoot is? And two, why? <laughs> Okay, so the Electric Mayhem comes up with a plan to disguise their car, so Fozzie and Kermit to make it to Hollywood, and they paint it in psychedelic colors. And here's what to I make love it more, to make it blend in. Yeah, more. But it'll blend in better. Yeah. So, <laughs> but there's a whole montage here. There's a song. Can you picture that? Which again, as a kid, I'd always zone out during this part. I think I truly think that song. If you listen to it, and then you listen to the theme song of Fraggle Rock, mm-hmm. they are so close. Yeah, okay. It's the same attitude. For my younger listeners, you may not know Fraggle Rock. Fraggle Rock was a... I love Fraggle Rock. It was a spinoff of the Muppet Universe, and it was uh, on HBO. It was on cable, so they could get away with stuff on there they wouldn't do on other shows. And they had a really catchy theme song. You should Google uh, the Fraggle Rock theme song. It really does sound exactly like the song. You're right. It really does. And it's a great theme song. Like, Like, if you're looking at theme songs from children's television shows, they're kind of like, there are some that are kind of popular now where you've got like ducktails or gummy bears or whatever that are these like kind of iconic theme songs. Fraggle rock is right up there. It's a good one. Okay. And here's what I love about this scene. They paint the car in psychedelic colors. So Fozzie and Kermit can, can evade detection. And what I love is that this is immediately rendered pointless because their spot, their car is spotted less than three seconds after they leave the church. Oh, Oh, and there's the great moment. It's kind of like that moment in The Princess Bride when Billy Crystal says, have fun storming the castle, where the band sends them off and says, when you get rich and famous, maybe we'll come along and exploit your wealth. Yeah, you had written in your notes, that's like a metaphor for somebody in Jim Henson's world. Who are you talking about there? No, I I wondered if it was. I don't know if it actually is. I was kind of curious about that, that, if that is meant to be a specific dig at somebody. I'm sure it is, but I don't know who. Yeah, for those who missed it, the the band yells, when you guys make it to Hollywood and become rich and famous, we will come exploit your wealth. So, yeah, yeah. clearly Jim Henson is taking digs at somebody. Yeah, that, that definitely feels like a dig. I don't know who, but it feels like a dig. Okay, we're about to meet the third member of the big Muppet triumvirate, Gonzo the Great, who they really love Gonzo and the Muppet Show. I remember watching it. They really come back to Gonzo all the time. What a weird character he is. And what I, love so about weird. The, what I love about the movie is they they steer right into that and they comment on how weird he is several times. Oh, yeah. In fact, um, if you don't like Muppets from Space, and it's it's truly weird. You know what's a great Muppet movie, Mario? What would that Conzo be? In it? That would be the Muppet Christmas Carol in which he serves as narrator slash Charles Dickens and is very good. Okay. (laughs) I'll write this down. Muppet Christmas Carol. There we go. I'm going to tattoo it on your forehead, man. It's got to be done. We can do a staff picks on it for Christmas time. It'll be amazing. It'll be nothing but me like repeating lines and laughing at all my favorite places. It'll be great. Everyone will love it. 
Joni's very aggressive in dictating which episode she's going to be on. I <laughs> just like pointing that out. But we, we've already made plans for a couple other movies in the future. But yes, per, that will be a possibility. Oh, and they're and they are good. I'm not going to say because I don't think you want me to, but they are good movies. Okay. So we'll get back to the the kind, gentle humor of the Muppet movie, where we meet Gonzo, who in this movie is apparently a plumber, Gonzo the plumber, and we never do find out what kind of animal he is. At one point they say he looks like a turkey. Yeah, his 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 actual like origin is up for question in virtually every sphere the Muppets have ever entered. Like people are constantly questioning what Gonzo is. Nobody knows. Well, there is one hard and fast rule about Gonzo. We know that he loves cock. Wait, I mean, <laughs> sorry, there, he, there's a chicken. There's a chicken that he loves. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> you know I love a good penis joke. <laughs> of course, yeah. So Gonzo travels with Camilla the chicken, and he is in love with her, and they are some sort of a couple. And I don't want to do the biology of what's going on there. But anyway, it's a very creepy romance. Nobody wants to. <laughs> Nobody wants to know what's happening there. <laughs> but they somehow join. There's a whole thing with their car crashes together and Gonzo and Camilla join them. I'm, I'm trying to jump ahead because I cannot have a three-hour Muppet movie podcast, Joni. Yeah, fine. All right. So, so they're going to go to Hollywood. And Gonzo says, I want to be a star too, but I'm going to go to India, Bombay, India. And Fozzie's like, why not go to Hollywood to be a movie star? And Gonzo says, well, because I want to do it the hard way. You go to India first and then become a movie star. <laughs> and Fozzie's like, we picked up a weirdo. <laughs> That's such a great line. Like, we found the weird one. It's so good. Yes. So, anyway, they go to a used car lot. They need a bigger car for all four people. We get another cameo here, Milton Burl, the one of the kings of comedy of that era, as the car dealer madman Mooney. And, uh... I don't know, not much you have to say about here other than they climb him out of a car. But the big takeaway from this scene is we get one of the great running gags in this movie, the Big Muppet Sweetums. Oh, I love Sweetums. I didn't know that was his name. Was that common knowledge, his name is Sweetums? Um, I don't know. I, I, yeah, I truly don't know. I, um, I, there's, there's the Muppet show that they do at um, Hollywood Studios in florida where i live and sweetums actually makes a cameo appearance there so they call him that in that particular um show so i'm not sure i don't know if that's common knowledge or if i just know it because i've seen that show so many times okay well for people who may not know who we're talking about sweetums is this big full body muppet on the muppet show at the time he was the first full body muppet where a person's literally just standing in a costume and he looks like a ogre or a troll or something he looks a little bit like what would happen if like a wookie had like been electrocuted and maybe ate too much like like he's, he's kind of in that realm <laughs> if a wookie had an extra chromosome sure <laughs> yes. Yeah, he, he's a big Wookiee. So, and they say, oh, we're going to Hollywood. Want to come? And he's like, oh, yeah. And he runs away and they drive off. And Sweetums will spend the forever of the rest of the movie chasing them, trying to catch up to them because he wanted to go to Hollywood, too. And I will say, Joni, as a kid, this storyline broke my heart. It was so sad. I hated the storyline. It is so sad, but the poor guy just can't fit in the car. <laughs> Like, literally, he couldn't fit in the car because they have they uh, Fozzie takes two puppeteers. Kermit takes one. And then they needed somebody to actually drive the car. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. OK. You talked about that at the top of the podcast. 
I'll go into that a little further. The technical challenges of doing these driving scenes. I don't think people realize how difficult those were. Okay, so especially as they get more Muppets in the car. So the the front of the car, where one of the headlights is kind of right in the center. Um, that's not where a headlight would go. It was where like the like the Chrysler. What what do you even call that? I don't know. Who knows? Grill. I don't. I don't, I don't do cars. Know. Sure, whatever. Yeah, whatever. That that the center part of the grill. Um, there's, that's where the camera would be so that the driver could actually see because they are actually driving the car. And then, um, so the driver's on his back, kind of laying down, like he's doing the luge, driving the car with that camera, telling him where they are. And then you have two puppeteers for Fozzie and one for Kermit, all kind of hiding down below underneath. So everybody's lying down in the car so you can't see them, but they're like they're literally driving the car so it got it got really crowded in there when you add miss piggy in a bit here and the driver himself was a little person they had to get a little like a midget or small someone small to actual drive and they couldn't see over the steering wheel right no 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 they no because that's that's why they had that little spot for the camera because they're they're driving the car but they're doing it more like a video game where you're watching the screen <laughs> where you're not actually able to see the physical space outside the car because they had to be all hidden down on the on the floor <laughs> they like they literally like emptied the floor out so it's like a clown car in there it must have been very uncomfortable filming those scenes oh it must have been awful <laughs> it must have been truly horrible but the scenes work like the it, it totally works it's another one of those like the bike at the beginning where you look at it and it looks really seamless but then you imagine all of these grown men basically like puppeteering on top of each other to make this scene happen you just go oh man i'm so glad that wasn't me (laughs) jim henson's in the bottom of a car for like four days he's like could somebody please strap me into a drum underwater again i would prefer it over there at least i'm by myself yeah for real it's a good thing he and frank Oz got along really well (laughs) (laughs) okay so we have another long stretch of the movie here where they go to a county fair i forget why they're just stopping here and there's cameos all over the place in this scene let's see we're gonna meet miss piggy here she went to beauty pageant mm-hmm. we're gonna meet elliot gould yeah elliot gould as the mc yeah and so we have the puppeteer edgar bergen and charlie mccarthy who young people wouldn't know who these people are but the very famous puppeteer back from the 50s and 60s jim henson's idol so it was like jim henson's dream to get this guy into a movie he's he shows up for one line with his puppet and then he ended up dying before the movie was released the movie was dedicated in edgar bergen's honor and what people may not know is that if you know candace bergen that's her father she was Mm -hmm. descended from this very famous puppeteer yeah, he um his puppet Charlie McCarthy is is really really famous in the world of puppetry. So that was a big deal for Jim Henson to have him there. He died like really really shortly after that scene was filmed too. It was not very long. Even though my wife pointed out every time we watch Edgar Bergen, man, he moved his lips a lot for somebody who was a really good puppeteer. Well, he was I mean, he was old. <laughs> okay. So we'll play the old card. But he, no, but 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 puppet Charlie was was very 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 well known. If I remember right, um, he took Charlie on like USO tours and stuff. He was super popular. I will defer to you as the one person who has taken a puppetry class. Maybe he didn't. I mean, he was, yeah, I mean, he was super popular in the 1940s. He was doing movies and stuff in the 1940s. <laughs> and I love that the puppet had a last name. I always appreciated that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> McCarthy. <laughs> Okay, so Miss Piggy wins a beauty pageant, and as she's on stage being crowned, uh, and again, this was, they used to have small town beauty pageants at state fairs. This was, this is pretty typical. You, from Iowa, I'm sure you have seen these types of things, right? 
Oh yeah. Although truly I saw probably more of them when I lived in Utah, like the small town ones in Iowa, there was the state fair in Iowa, which is mammoth. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, having these like small town beauty pageants where people get crowned weird things, like the town that lived, that was closest to me in, in Utah that had a fair like this, um, had onion days. (laughs) So you could get, you could be the onion queen. (laughs) Now, was it ever won by a pig? Uh, well, none as great as Miss Piggy, obviously. Okay, so we're going to be introduced to the dysfunctional romantic world of Miss Piggy here, where she wins a beauty pageant, and she looks out of the crowd, she sees Kermit, and she is immediately smitten by a frog. And we get her love ballad, Never Before and Never Again, which possibly has the worst end high note you'll ever hear in a song. Worst slash best. It's, it's, it's both of those things. <laughs> And as you pointed out, it's basically Yoda singing. Oh, it's it's so much better when you imagine Miss Piggy as Yoda. It really is. <laughs> okay, so let's skip through. There's a lot of slapstick in the scene. And uh Yo, yeah, where where does the line come in? I wrote it down, but I can't remember where it is, where that if you were a chicken, you'd be impeccable. It's uh, yeah, it's somewhere in this scene where Gonzo is trying to hit on Miss Piggy and his, oh, yeah. there his, it is. There his it is. chicken girlfriend is jealous. It's so but If you were a chicken, you'd be impeccable. <laughs> That's such a great pun. <laughs> I don't think I even caught that was a pun until you pointed that out to me. Oh, it's great. Okay, so uh, Kermit invites Miss Piggy to get ice cream. He will humor her. And she thinks he means come with us to Hollywood. Anyway, she's going to join them. But we get a lot of cameos here. We get Bob Hope shows up here. We get uh, as an ice cream vendor. We get uh, Richard Pryor as a balloon vendor. Oh, which is so good. He's got a great cameo. Oh, oh, okay. Here's something I wanted to point out. This scene, you know what the Mandela effect is, right? Mm-hmm. Where people have memories of stuff, and rather than admit they were too stupid, they, they invent some parallel universe that something changed. And anyway, <laughs> look, <laughs> yeah. up, look up Mandela effect. It's one of the stupidest things I've ever heard. But I have a Mandela effect in this movie because I saw this movie many, many times as a kid, and I totally remember Kermit's ice cream being called Frog Ripple. <laughs> And when I watched it to re- to, re- to reference this movie, the, re- the his ice cream is actually Dragonfly Ripple. And I'm like, no, hell no. For 40 years, I've known that as Frog Ripple. But it turns out I'm just stupid, and it was always Dragonfly Ripple. But that is my one instance of the Mandela effect that I was wrong about. Drag- you're one. Dragonfly Ripple does make le- make him less of a cannibal, which is nice. <laughs> yeah. All these years, I thought he was just horrible. He would He was passing on frog legs, but he's totally down for eating frog ice cream. So I thought he was just a horrible hypocrite. Oh. Well, we've redeemed Kermit. So if nothing, if, if this podcast accomplishes nothing today, <laughs> yes. we have redeemed Kermit from cannibalism in your mind. Or frogalism. Is it still, is it still cannibalism if he's a frog, or is there another word for it? That's an interesting question. Again, so many theological discussions that come out of this podcast. I'm not sure. I mean, it was made in the 70s by people who probably did drugs at one point. So, <laughs> Okay, so uh, Gonzo gets a, buys a bunch of balloons and flies away. And uh, again, more slapstick as uh, 
Gonzo's flying away on balloons. Kermit and Fozzie have to go chase him. They get chased by Doc Hopper, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, long story short, Fozzie and Kermit and Gonzo and Camilla now take Miss Piggy with them. So now we have five people in the car. Anyway, we have a lot of Miss Piggy coming up here because now we have the big romantic scene where they want to stop for the night and Miss Piggy's like, let's stop here so I can have a romantic dinner with Kermie. And I'm sure you have something interesting to say about their horribly dysfunctional relationship here. Oh, it's so awkward. Like she's, it's so, it's so funny to me that, I mean, Jim Henson and his wife had an amazing relationship. <laughs> so where this comes from, I really don't know. This is this is I don't believe autobiographical, but I do find Kermit and Piggy's relationship utterly delightful because Kermit does have affection for her. Like in later, you know, incarnations, you see that they love each other. They do play Bob and Mrs. Cratchit. <laughs> but do they ever actually hook up? They never get married or anything, right? They get married, yeah. Okay, I don't know. I don't know the the uh, Muppet mythology after this movie. Well, it's 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 a little bit weird because in some like in some places they do get married. I think they I think they get married in the Great Muppet Caper actually. Hmm. But they but yeah, but then they become like unmarried and they start dating. So it's always this kind of <laughs> like nebulous thing. <laughs> it's a horrible divorce they go through. Which again, seeing their relationship in this movie, I can see that because <laughs> she is terrible to him and they don't get along at all. They really don't. Although I will say, and I, I, I do keep bringing up the Muppet Christmas Carol, so you'll have to forgive me on this one. But one of my favorite moments in that movie is when he gets home from work with Tiny Tim and Miss Piggy as Mrs. Cratchit goes to give him a hug. And when she hugs him, you hear a little squeaker noise. <laughs> and it's the most beautiful little moment of like subtle sexual humor ever. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> You're totally selling this for me now. Oh, you have to, like, for that moment alone is so funny. I got to drop a uh, quote from my daughter here. So my daughter, I told her I was doing a Muppet movie, and she's like, is that the one with Kermit's little son at the start? There's, like, a little baby frog? Because she thought that was his son, not his nephew. And I'm like, no, I'm like, yeah, I'm not sure if that's his son or not. And she's like, if that's his son, shouldn't he be half pig? That's that is that is a very good question that they also have to deal with in Muppet Christmas Carol, where the boys are frogs and the girls are pigs. And my friend Sarah and I spent a lot of time debating um, half seriously over whether they were called frigs or pogs. <laughs> well, also, I mean, just from an ethical point of view, you start mixing frog DNA and pig DNA. That's how you get coronavirus, right? Um, Probably. God damn you, Kermit and Piggy. Oh, it's it's all because I'm a Muppet Christmas Carol. I don't know if I can still like that movie now. <laughs> That's the one where they consummated and they doomed humanity. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so speaking of disgusting things, Steve Martin and his response to Kermit and Piggy's date is incredible. Like the contempt on his face when he asks Kermit if he wants to smell the bottle cap is so good. Yeah, I was going to say earlier, this movie isn't really a comedy, but if there is one scene that will always make me laugh in this movie, it is Steve Martin just being an absolute dick to Kermit the Frog. <laughs> It's incredible. And and the fact that they put him in those awful is is it later hosen? Yeah, is it like little German short pants? Oh my gosh. It's just oh, it's so good. It's so good. Watching any time Steve Martin does pissed off in a comedic way better than almost any actor I know. Like there there are so few actors that I that I can think of that do 
pissed off in a way that makes it funny mm-hmm. better than he does. He's so good at it. And this is Steve Martin in his prime, late 70s Steve Martin. And like Kermit's like, or Steve Martin's the waiter, if you haven't seen it. And mm-hmm. Kermit's like, oh, you may serve us now. And Steve Martin's like, oh, may I? It's so good. It's so good. Yeah, so Steve Martin just sparring with Kermit the Frog, just Steve Martin at his peak. Again, my personal favorite cameo. I think you said this was your favorite cameo in the movie, too. Yeah, yeah, this is definitely my favorite cameo. Well, my favorite cameo of substance. Like, Madeline Kahn, I love just because I love her. Mm -hmm. But in terms of, like, cameos where they actually take time, you can tell that they really liked working with Steve Martin because they do give him so much. Most of the cameos are so much shorter, but he has this really great scene, and it's so funny. Yes. And he's got the great line. Oh, you ordered the 95 cent wine from one of the great wineries of Idaho. It's so good. (laughs) Apparently some Idaho wineries got a little upset by that because there are, I guess, Idaho wineries. (laughs) Really? But it is, but, but it is a great gag. This idea of like, oh, you're ordering it from Idaho. (laughs) Okay. So, uh, Miss Piggy bails on Kermit in the middle of her dinner because she has to go take a phone call. And Kermit is all morose because, like, Miss Piggy's playing with his heart. We're going Backstreet Boys here. She's playing games with his heart. Oh, my gosh. I cannot believe you brought up the Backstreet Boys. That's what I do, Joni. Wow. But then wow. He, he's troubled by this. And then he goes over to the piano player, Rolf, the dog, who, again, the, there's a lot of Rolf in the Muppet show. If you watch his old episodes, man, are those scenes gratuitous. It's like, man, these scenes go on forever with Rolf. I could never stand him on there. But he does a nice little ballad here with Kermit called Can't Live With Him, Can't Live Without Him, which I don't think people realize. I didn't realize until I watched it today what a technical challenge this was because Jim Henson is both those characters. He really is. And it was um, it was a huge deal for a bunch of reasons. Um, it's, I mean, it's essentially Jim Henson doing a duet with himself, <laughs> which is which is fantastic. But also, Rolf is another one of those puppets that takes two puppeteers. And so this is one of the scenes, one of the rare moments on film where Jim Henson actually passed Kermit off to another puppeteer because Kermit's physical performance in this section didn't require as much skill. And Rolf's is really intricate. So Henson is 100% controlling Rolf in this scene. Kermit is actually being manipulated by someone else. It's one of the few moments where that has happened. Yeah, it's it's a very memorable scene. Again, as a kid, I always kind of got bored by this song. And even as an adult, I don't really enjoy the Rolf stuff. But this scene is really well done. And the more I learned about what you just said, I appreciate it watching it now. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's one dude playing both characters, doing the both voices in the song. That's actually quite impressive what they pulled off here. Yeah, it is pretty cool. Yeah, I, I will agree. It's not my favorite song either. I think it's a, one of those moments in the film where you're like, eh, we might have done without this. But it's such a short film anyway. You can kind of just move on. It's OK. OK, but we are going to get to one of the standout scenes in the movie that Piggy is apparently kidnapped in the middle of this dinner. She's skirted away by Doc Hopper. And basically, Doc Hopper says, come rest, come find your pig friend and and uh, or I'm going to kill her. So Kermit is now <laughs> being blackmailed again. It's a little dark for a kid's movie. And we end up in this really, really scary scene for a kid's movie where Mel Brooks is this evil German scientist who's been hired to hook Kermit up to a machine that's going to scramble his brains and turn him into a zombie. I know. And this is such, like, I I do wonder how much 
they leaned into Mel Brooks just as a human being to make that happen because Mel Brooks is so weird. <laughs> like, and that's the kind of thing where he would include that in one of his one of his own movies. This is straight up Mel Brooks's alley. Oh yeah, Mel Brooks basically playing a Nazi scientist. He's playing Doctor Mengele basically because that's what he does because he's a Jewish guy. He hates the Nazis. So yeah, it's this. Uh, what? The, but I forget this doctor's name, but he's gonna perform a serumbrectomy, and he's gonna, mm-hmm. you know, fry Kermit's brain. And and I gotta say, this is the scene my wife loves. All the physical humor that Kermit does in this scene with him trying to get out of the ropes and shrinking and shaking and gasping. And there's one scene in particular <laughs> where. Where Mel Brooks straps Kermit into this machine that he's going to fry him. It's like an electric chair. And Mel Brooks says, struggle all you want. It won't do you any good. And he lowers his head right into Kermit's face. And Kermit sucks down as far as he can. Mm -hmm. It's like a clam retracting into a shell. Oh, it's so funny. I actually think that might be one of the reasons why they keep Kermit and Piggy together so much because watching Kermit panic is hilarious. <laughs> like, you know, like everybody gets kind of this like semi sick pleasure out of watching Kermit suffer because it's very funny. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's something my wife pointed out when we watched the Muppet Show. She's like, Kermit takes a lot of abuse. Like in the in the show, he's always getting flung or thrown or crashed into stuff. And she's like, I didn't realize they were so violent towards Kermit. Oh yeah, he's yeah he's so abused, and it's it's. It's funny because he's kind of neurotic. <laughs> he's he's a stressor. Poor Kermit. He needs some anxiety help. <laughs> but I will say that's the picture we have on our desktop wallpaper on our computer at home is Kermit's head sucking down as far as he can like George Costanza with shrinkage in the ocean because my wife loves that image so much of Kermit pulling back as far as he can. It's so funny. I love when he does. I mentioned that earlier. I love when he does that when he just sucks into himself. It's so funny. <laughs> Yeah. But again, as a kid, this scene was terrifying. Like it's like legitimate peril that these puppets are being put in. They're going to be electrocuted, but they escape in that uh, Miss Piggy is is angry because they keep making bacon jokes about her. (laughs) And she kind of she finally flips out and becomes a karate expert and basically goes roadhouse and cleans the entire building out of bad guys and saves Kermit and kills Mel Brooks. It's amazing. I love that moment. It's so fun to watch Mel Brooks suffer. <laughs> okay, let's get to the end of the movie here. So we're gonna, there's a little interlude here where the movie breaks, where they go back to the theater, the film strip is broken, and the Swedish chef is up there going, Ernie, flip, 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 flip. <laughs> Which, yep, it's so good. The Swedish chef is another one of my favorite little, like, cameo Muppets. He's one of those that they the, the Muppets do a really good job of, having a handful of those Muppets, like I think Beaker is a little bit like this and Rizzo is kind of like this too, truthfully, where they like a little goes a long way. And if they use them too often, animals like this too, where if they use them too often, they could get really old and kind of annoying, Mm -hmm. but in like little pieces, it's really funny. And the Swedish chef is definitely one of those. Like you can only take so much of the Swedish chef before he's not really funny anymore, but in little pieces, he's gold. And this is one of those great moments. I think I remember from watching the Muppet show is that, the Swedish chef was interesting for them to perform and they loved doing it because he was the only one that Jim Henson and Frank Oz were doing simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one's guy's doing the, the mouth and one guy's doing the hands and they don't know what the other person's going to do. So it's like total chaos. Yeah. It's like that old whose line is it anyway sketch that they would do where, you know, Ryan Stiles stands in front and Colin Mockery does his hands. It's the same thing. It's just like, okay, well let's just find out what happens. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so here we go. We're going back to the movie fixes itself. They go back and Kermit and Fozzie are uh, driving across the country and we get the America the Beautiful montage. And although (laughs) now it gets scary again because Doc Hopper has tried to kill Kermit once. Now he hires a professional frog killer named uh, what is his name? Snake Walker. 
Yeah, Snake Walker. <laughs> like, this is a dark movie. They're trying to kill Kermit. And, like, Doc Hopper at this point is flat out just trying to murder him. There's no pretense. I just want to kill that frog. Yeah, and we do this in this awesome Western-style showdown where you get another opportunity to see, like, full-body shots of Muppets. And, <laughs> and, and we get to go see Dr. Honeydew and Beaker. Okay, okay, we'll get to that in a second. First, we do the, they get a flat tire, they get stranded out in the in the, the oh, stars right. in the desert. Yeah, and this is where we get the song, which I didn't realize this song was such a big deal. Now, I'll set the stage. The Muppets are stranded out in the middle of the desert. They get a flat tire. Their audition in Hollywood is supposed to be tomorrow. They're not going to make it. It looks like they failed, and everyone's kind of, mad at kermit because he's let them down he's like you promised we'd be rich you promised we'd be stars and he's like i never promised anyone i just wanted to go follow my dreams why is everyone mad at me so first he has a he has like an internal monologue with himself which is a very deep scene for a puppet movie but yeah, then, it really is. but then gonzo sings the song which is i'm going to go back there someday which is i didn't realize was such a famous song why is this song famous uh, it was Jim Henson's favorite song in the movie. Um, he, like, it just, it really spoke to him. And then, um, the guy that does the voice of Gonzo, whose name is escaping me right now, actually sang it at the memorial service for Jim Henson after he passed. Yeah. So it's a song that is very much associated with him. Yeah. I didn't realize that. I, this is a scene I would kind of zone out when I was a kid, but now it takes on a different poignancy. I didn't realize that was the song they played at Jim Henson's funeral. That's mm -hmm. very sweet when I watch that now. Yeah, especially when, yeah, the, the, cause I would have thought, oh, you know, you associate Jim Henson with Rainbow Connection, but, but no, it's actually this one, which is really quite sweet. Okay, so yeah, this long interlude here with Kermit has let everybody down, but it turns out they are saved at the last minute because the Electric Mayhem, Doc Teeth, and the group shows up, and once again they're because like because they read the script. They read the script. That's so cool. <laughs> we read the screenplay. We knew where to find you. So here we are. Let's take you to Hollywood. One of those jokes that as a kid I totally didn't appreciate, but as an adult I find so funny. <laughs> yeah, that's very cool. I think it's you know plot convenience theater, but it still it works because they've set up that storyline earlier that they can do that. No, well, not only did they set it up, but they are literally acknowledging it. Like sometimes you watch movies where suddenly there's this like sudden burst of fortune and it feels cheap. But in this case, they're like, hey, we're going to give you a sudden burst of fortune and call out how cheap it is. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so we're about to have the big finale that they are now going to Hollywood. But there's still one last showdown with Doc Hopper and his trained frog killers. And uh, Max, the one flunky, Doc Hopper's flunky, comes and warns them. And he says, you know, there's a there's a frog killer. They're going to kill you. They're going to ambush you, Kermit. And and uh, and so Kermit's like, finally, he's like, you know, there's a bully after me. I got to stand up to this guy. We're going to have one last showdown. Tell your boss, Doc Hopper, I will meet him in this abandoned ghost town up ahead. One time we're going to talk it out. Then he leaves me alone. So this is Kermit's one big showdown. Yeah, it's, it's always fun to see Kermit actually. Um like grow a pair <laughs> quite frankly <laughs> like when he when he finally decides he's going to just like own up to things and face his problems because he is so anxiety ridden that that's always a big moment of triumph in any of the Muppet movies like you'll notice that that happens in a lot of them Kermit actually standing up for himself is is quite often that moment of triumph all right, so now we are going to uh, get the great uh, standing up for your, yourself, as you pointed out, as he's going to meet 
Doc Hopper in this abandoned ghost town, and we get to this town. It's a uh, some western town, and it's got really, you know, you can tell it's a high noon showdown, a western thing. Although the first thing is we get to town, we meet uh, apparently Doctor Bunsen Honeydew and my favorite Beaker are living in this town where they create inventions for the good of society. It's so nice of them. <laughs> They're so thoughtful. <laughs> this is where we get my personal favorite. Now, almost any kid I knew, this was their favorite quote in this movie, where they go in the laboratory and they have to take Animal out for a walk. Animal needs to go out. Again, the, the <laughs> electric mayhem is totally out, is with uh, Kermit now. They're all going to Hollywood together. And they go into Dr. Honeydew's laboratory and they see these Instagrow pills. And they say, what do these do? And Dr. Honeydew says, well, you eat them and it grows anything much bigger. And they say, oh, is it, does it last forever? And Dr. says, oh, no, the effect is sadly temporary. And right off to the left is Beaker, my favorite, who says, sadly temporary. <laughs> and he sighs. <laughs> and that's the quote every kid I knew quoted that, sadly temporary. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. I didn't, yeah, that's funny. <laughs> I would have thought it was the, I would have thought it was the, the, gag about it being um helping things grow <laughs> oh no no it's the if anybody could do beaker i need to this day if i hear something is temporary i will say that under my breath shady temporary <sighs> amazing that's awesome i didn't know that about you that's super good <laughs> i like to drop a little trivia like that that's awesome so doc hopper shows up and uh he meets kermit out in the street and we get a really nice scene of kermit basically saying you know why are you doing this to me why your dream is to kill me and eat frog legs. My dream is to go to Hollywood and make people happy. Why is your dream any better than mine? Like, I'm just here with my friends. Who are your friends, Doc? Like, it's a really nice speech. Yeah, it is. And I love at the end, Doc Hopper says, yeah, screw it. Kill him. <laughs> so I know. It's so nice. Like, the whole time you're thinking, oh, this will work. Like, who could turn down that speech? It's it's hitting my heart. And Doc is like, yeah, I don't care. <laughs> yes. I want a dead frog. And so this is where the Instagrow pills we just saw two minutes ago come into play. And uh, most kids, like, I remember this guy, like, smattered applause in the theater among kids. They're always very excited about this because it looks like it's all over. But sure enough, everyone's favorite Muppet saves the day. Who saves the day, Joni? Animal saves the day. <laughs> now, how does he save the day? Uh, he gets real big. And this is a cool scene in the show because um, they wanted, originally the idea was to to do this with kind of forced camera angles um, in the same way that they do in, say, Lord of the Rings, where they're making Elijah Wood, who is a generally short human being anyway, but making him look shorter, and Ian McKellen, who is a relatively tall human being, making him look taller by forced camera angles and forced perspective. But in here, Jim Henson was absolutely set on Animal being literally that big. And so they made an animal puppet head that is like 60 feet wide or 60 feet round. I can't remember which it is, but he's he's mammoth. And that is an actual, legitimate, practical, touchable puppet. I can just imagine all the people working with Jim Henson. Like, seriously? We got to make that puppet just for this one shot? Oh, and it works. It is so good. Yeah. For people who haven't seen it, Animal eats one of the Instant Grow pills, this crazy Muppet who is basically a savage beast. He grows hundreds and hundreds of feet. His head pops out of the building. All the bad guys are scared and run away. And that's really the end of Doc Hopper and the bad guys. They're terrified of Animal. And from here on out, Kermit and his friends can go live their dream and become movie stars. Woohoo! <laughs> the um, the uh, the director that they end up talking to 
is a direct homage to the one who gave Jim Henson his start, by the way. Okay, well, yeah, we'll get to that. I always forget when I watch this movie how quickly the movie ends after the animal scene. It's like immediately almost over right after that. It's true. Yeah, it does end very, very quickly after that. Okay, so they go to Hollywood. We get a montage of them going past all the Hollywood signs, and they've arrived. They go into the studio office. They want to be movie stars. They have to get past the snooty secretary who... I didn't even realize until today that was played by Cloris Leachman. I didn't realize that was I love Cloris Leachman. I have a fun trivia fact about Cloris Leachman, actually. She was born in Des Moines, Iowa. And so to this day, they actually in Iowa have a series of theater awards in honor of her called the Cloris Awards. I was hoping they'd be the Frau Blucher Awards and they'd have the horse winning. That would that would have been that would have been way cooler (laughs) because that is one of my favorite of her roles. But they're called the Chorus Awards. <laughs> okay. Yeah. For years, I didn't know that was Chorus Leachman as a kid because I reckon I, I know her from being in makeup in other movies. This is when she's not really in makeup. But yeah, she's the snooty secretary. They get past her because she's allergic. They get into the studio head. It's played by Orson Welles, who, like you said, is a direct homage to the guy who gave the Muppet Show the green light, right? So, um, so Orson Welles is a, plays Lou Lord. Um, the character's name is a reference to Sue Lord Grade who was the head of the British company ATV, which helped um, produce or co-produce The Muppet Show. So so it's a direct homage to the person who gave The Muppets their start. Hmm. I did not know that. Thank you. All right. And basically, that's the end of the movie. They get their contract. It gives them the standard rich and famous contract for Kermit the Frog and company. I love that it's called the standard rich and famous contract. <laughs> And the, the movie ends with them basically the Muppets going down into the soundstage and basically recreating the movie we just saw, but out of like cardboard props and stuff. So it's very meta. We're mm-hmm. going we're recycling back on yourself like a Mobius strip. And uh, we get a reprise of the Rainbow Connection here. This is a really, really cool scene because they literally just put out a call for any puppet. And they say that the quote that I read was that every puppet east of the Rockies reported for pit duty because they filmed it in a single day and they used every single Muppet that existed to that point to make this happen. Um, and it was, so it's, it's 150 puppeteers and like 230 some odd Muppets, 250 ish Muppets, Mm -hmm. 137 puppeteers, um, plus a bunch of extra volunteers. It was a pit that was six feet deep, 17 feet wide, and among the puppeteers in that pit was Tim Burton, which I think is kind of cool. Um, but apparently what happened was, I mean, a lot, you, when you call for that many volunteers, not all of them had experience doing puppeteer work for camera because mostly puppeteer work is done in person on stage. And so Jim Henson gave all of them a really quick, like, this is how you do cinematic puppetry, like crash course. And it only took him a day, which is crazy. Yeah, if uh, people haven't seen the movie in a while, the last shot of the movie is basically every single Muppet that had ever been designed up to this point in history being in a pit singing the Rainbow Connection, and then they sing the song, uh, We've Done Just What We Set Out To Do. And yeah, it pulls back, and it's this huge shot of so many amateur puppeteers. You can't even see that. I mean, you don't see the people. You just see every Muppet ever invented, and they're singing. And really, that's the end of the movie, that they reached the goal, they found their dream, and now they've been making people happy, which is a perfect metaphor, again, for what Jim Henson had been doing. And it's a just a really neat moment in movie history that this movie 
is existed at that time. It was a cool technical feat, and it really tells the true story of someone who never should have really made it in Hollywood, but did, and became bigger than life. And this is really his story. Yeah. Hey, remember that time when we were talking about how we have problems with our east and our west? Yes. I just did it. It was west of the Rockies, not east of the Rockies. <laughs> well, you know what? It happens to the best of us. Um, you probably are not a, a Stephen King reader. Stephen King wrote a book called The Drawing of the Three, which is a Dark Tower book. And he has someone on the West Coast the entire time. And this guy's on the West Coast, and he keeps looking to the right, to the east, and seeing the ocean. Oh, no. <laughs> it happens over and over and over in the book. And it's because Stephen King grew up in Maine, and he's used to the ocean always being on his ra- on the, the east, to the right. Oh, that's so and, funny. But it's like he totally screws it up in the book, and he had to apologize for it later. So it happens to the best of us. Oh, man. Well, I'm I'm so glad to be in, in good company. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and again, that's the movie, and we go back, and uh, it ends in chaos of all the Muppets in the theater watching it. Sweetums runs through the screen, finally having made it to Hollywood. And really, just a really neat time period, time capsule of a movie that I will hear no arguments that any other movie, Muppet movie, is anything more important than this one. Like, maybe there's better ones, but this is the one you have to talk about, because the first one is always the most important. Oh, I, I think that's true. Like, for all my razzing you about The Muppet Christmas Carol, which you should see, or even, like, the newer Muppet movies, none of that would have existed without this one. Like, as a as a historical piece of film, it should be required viewing. You just, you have to know this movie to be culturally savvy. You just do. And I'm glad that even you didn't know what a big deal this was. Like, I... I, I don't think, again, younger people wouldn't, wouldn't realize the impact of this movie. Again, this was a an equivalent to Superman. That's how big a deal it was at the time. So about, adults were seeing it, parents were seeing it. It was a much bigger deal than you think a Muppet movie would have been. Well, and I think that one of the one of the things I do like about the Muppets, and maybe this is just me, so this this could be totally off, but I feel like there's something very personal about the Muppets and that there are so many of them that you can, I mean, we talked about that. You can kind of have your favorites. So you kind of feel it, it has this very like community vibe. It feels like something that's special for you. And so when you, I, I and maybe, maybe that's just me not growing up in the late seventies and seeing this happen, but it, as a kid, it always felt like something that I was, that, that was mine and that I got to share with people and that they didn't kind of feel it the same way I did. But you, you don't realize how far Muppets have per, like, gone into our culture and society until you start considering again like you know sesame street has 100 percent brand recognition that there are so many sesame streets around the world that the muppets are still coming back for more movies that i mean they've announced a new muppet tv show on disney plus so like after they've been around for you know 60 some odd years now since the henson company started that they are still relevant is just awesome i love that and that does tie into one last thing i want to talk about before we go here is that that? you know more about Jim Henson and the Muppets than I do. I've been reading up on him in preparation for the podcast, but my daughter said something the other day that I'd really like to get your thoughts on, is that my daughter said, you know, they always say like there's like the three universally good people that everyone loves and nobody could ever say a bad thing about, and she says Mm -hmm. they're like, uh, what, Steve Irwin, Bob Ross, and Mr. Rogers, like the three that everyone talks about. She's like, should Jim Henson be on that list too? And I was thinking about that. No one ever said a bad word about Jim Henson, right? There was nothing anybody could ever say that was bad about that guy. Oh, no. Everybody talks about, like, when you, when you talk about people that knew him, you t- they, they all talk about what a gentle, kind, just good-hearted human being he was, that he, fe- that he surrounded himself with people he trusted, that he encouraged creativity, that he wanted people to feel good about themselves. Like, 
he really, he really is one of those people that, I mean, I, I, and in fairness, I haven't done like a dissertation or whatever on the life of Jim Henson. I don't know if, you know, I, I mean, I'm sure if this, I, I don't know, people may have dirt on him, but if there is, I haven't found it. The, the, the legacy that he has is one that I find really, really touching. In fact, one of the, one of the most beautiful pieces of art I've ever seen was after Jim Henson died, they released a picture. Someone at Disney animation drew a picture of Kermit in his swamp kind of facing away from the viewer and Mickey was next to him with his arm around Kermit. Wow. And it is so beautiful. Like that, that Mickey, who is also, you know, in a, in a very Kermit like way, those two characters are very recognizable, universally beloved, this like bonding between the two of them. It's just, it's stunning. Jim Henson was an incredible giant of a man in the world of, of cinema and, and puppeteering and the lives of adults and children alike. He's a giant. And I guess there is one other thing that to end on here is that I do remember one thing about Jim Henson and he, he kind of became a cautionary tale after he died. And I would mm-hmm. like to share this with people who may not know this when he died. Now I may be wrong. I think I remember this correctly. He just had a simple infection that probably would have been fine if he had gone to a doctor, but he chose not to. Mm-hmm. And so he kind of became a cautionary tale to not overlook infections and stuff because he easily would have survived and it became a, one of these stories like we could have had him for many more years if he'd if he'd actually looked into that yeah he died when he was in his early 50s it was really really sad um he um yeah he was having trouble breathing um he didn't want to take time to schedule a visit to the hospital and it's just, yeah it's it's really really awfully sad he died at age 53 which is just awful it was um an advanced um, version of strep. It had, it, it had advanced into bacterial pneumonia and then it got into toxic shock and all this stuff. So yeah, like in this, in this age of, of alternative medicines and stuff, like go see a doctor if you need to see a doctor. <laughs> yeah. And like I said, that's the only thing, like you said, if anybody could dig up dirt on Jim Henson, you you've never personally heard it. That's the only thing I always remember about him is that he was just this wonderfully gentle man who invented this whole new universe of puppetry and magic and sharing love in the world. But that also becomes part of his story. He kind of became a cautionary tale at the end. So it's like, there's so many things to talk about. I'm glad we got to touch on them a little, but again, we're just here to talk about the Muppet movie, but Jim Henson had so many bigger things than that about his legacy yeah oh also apparently maybe he didn't have like the longest maybe i'm finding something about his life oh no he just had the one never mind they they, they went through a rough patch so maybe she was the <laughs> maybe maybe she was the miss piggy i don't know but in fairness fozzy the bear was created for her Okay. So never mind. That's that's a random fact. I don't know. Yeah, maybe I don't know as much about their life about his marriage as I thought I did. But they remained close until no, they remained close until his death. They separated in 1986. So he did get divorced if that bothers you, but they had five children and they were close until he died in 1990. So Okay. I'm glad. Thank you for salvaging his dignity there. Yeah, so he's so he's not perfect, but he is he's pretty damn close. <laughs> All right, so we'll put him up in the holy triumvirate of people that everyone loved with again Bob Ross, Steve Irwin, and Mister Rogers. I think that's a pretty good pretty good group. I think they I think that is a, is a good place to put all of them. All right, and we've done the impossible, Joni. We've done over two hours on the Muppet movie, which is only ninety minutes. <laughs> <laughs> we always get distracted, but again. We have fun talking to each other, so I hope you guys listening enjoy our conversation. I I will have Joni on again just because she always has something interesting to say. Although, 
I was I was not going to mention this, but I better I think I will now. I changed my mind, Joni. The next movie I want to have you on for. We talked about it earlier today. Uh huh. This is going to piss people off because a lot of people think they might get this movie, but I'm going to give it to you. Oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> One of the greatest movies of the '80s that nobody ever talks about. I think it might indeed be the best comedy of the '80s. It's either A Fish Called Wanda or this one. Joni will be back for Dirty Rotten Scoundrels in the near future. Oh, I'm stoked. That is one of those movies that when I was growing up, it was the movie everybody could agree on. Like if we were trying to have a family movie night and we couldn't agree on what to watch, we ended up watching Dirty Rotten Scoundrels because it is genius. And I'm so excited. Absolutely. And once again, we get to see Steve Martin being pissed off about stuff. Oh, and as Ruprecht, which is amazing. In fact, my dad, fun story, my dad actually sent me an airplane ticket once um, when I was flying to Omaha, and he emailed me, addressed it to Fanny Eubanks. <laughs> <laughs> Just so he could say, Fanny Eubanks, Fanny Eubanks from Omaha. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's sign off. I want to keep this fairly short. But anyway, anything else you got to say about Jim Henson or the Muppets? Or I know you're probably busy for a puppet class you got to get to or something. Oh, my gosh. I'm on summer break, man. I'm going to go watch him up at Christmas Carol. <laughs> but it's not Christmas, you monster. It is always Christmas in the Muppet Christmas Carol world. I would watch that movie every day for the, like my entire life and never get tired of it, ever. You laugh, but I'm completely serious. <laughs> I'm totally, I know you're serious. I know you. You're crazy. <laughs> I am. That's why you like me. Yes. All right. So again, thank you for stopping by once again. And uh, to all my listeners, thank you for listening as we delved into the world of Muppets here. Again, my name is Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. If you need to reach me, you can reach me at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. Until next time, I'll be out there searching for more movies that deserve more love, and I'll try to find somebody interesting to come on and talk about them. I will talk to you guys later. Watch out for the fork in the road. Bye. Sparkling Muscatel, one of the finest wines of Idaho. Uh, uh, well, you may serve us now, please. Oh, may I? <laughs>